When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who, when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello, my friends. Welcome back to Unshaken. I'm Jared Halverson, and I hope you brought your hiking boots today because we're going to need them. We are back in Exodus, and we've left Egypt behind us. We've crossed the Red Sea. We've been navigating our wilderness of sin, and today we find ourselves at the base of Mount Sinai with some hiking ahead. So yes, hiking boots are in order. Uh, and a good walking stick if you've got one. Thinking of you, Moses, and the rod of God. When I first hiked Sinai in college, it was an incredible experience. The view from the top is amazing. But to get there, it takes a lot of putting one foot in front of the other. And that sounds a lot like the lessons we're going to try to learn today as far as the law of the Lord is concerned. Uh, we started in the middle of the night. And at the beginning, it was just plodding along in the darkness. And that does feel like keeping the commandments sometimes, especially when we're young. I don't understand why I'm doing this. I don't see any purpose in it. But they keep cracking the whip and saying, just keep walking forward. Ah, fine. Well, as we get a little higher in elevation, as the light begins to dawn, typically we begin to see why we were supposed to walk a certain narrow path. Looking back, oh yeah, there were some steep drop-offs. I'm glad I had the confines of covenant to keep me in safe space. And by the time we get to the top and can fully see all that got us there, then I hope we'll have the paradigm shift that allows us to echo the Lord's words in the Doctrine and Covenants, that we have been crowned with commandments, not a few. You see, we all started on foot, and most of commandments and obedience really are just taking it step by step. There were places on the trail that camels were available if absolutely necessary. And yes, I do believe that God offers us whatever support we need to ascend. On the backside of Sinai, it's fascinating, there's actually an ancient monastery, St. Catherine's. And over the centuries, the monks have literally carved out of the stones of Sinai a staircase to get to the top. I mean, they can hike it any time they want. And I think that says something about commandments as well. We saw earlier the rungs of Jacob's ladder. Oh, the principles and ordinances of the gospel that get us home to him. But these steps up Sinai are similar. And to understand to the, the commandments given one by one to help us climb back to Christ, they are such a blessing. It's not a burden. And once you get to the top and, and take in the view, believe me, it will all be worth it. Now, the Ten Commandments is what will occupy chapter 20. We'll get there. We're going to start with chapter 18 today. And honestly, the Come, Follow Me curriculum is just going to cover 18, 19, and 20. Next week, we'll pick up with Exodus 24, which means we skipped some things. And if you've been with me for a while, you know I don't like to skip stuff. There's incredible uh, principles to find wherever we look. And so, yes... I, I know you. I know how uh, the intrepid hikers that you are, and you, you want to leave no stone unturned. And so, yes, by the end of today's lesson, we will bring in chapter 21, 2, and 3 as well. There's incredible 
oh, lesser commandments, but incredible things that didn't just make the 10. Now, to get there, though, let's start with chapter 18. Last, or I guess it was two weeks ago, we saw 17 where we're beginning to see more involvement among the house of Israel. And that's a good thing. Moses can't do it all himself. And we'll see that dramatized even more clearly today in chapter 18. In 17, it was Moses on the mountaintop, rod in hand. You have Aaron and Hur sustaining and supporting him on either side. And you have Joshua and the armies of Israel down in the valley fighting the Amalekites. And yes, it took everyone lifting where they stood to be able to win that battle. Now, that was in the military realm. Today, we're going to see it in the spiritual realm, and even the political, if you want to call it that, as the House of Israel is trying to figure out how are we going to live life together as a community as we head toward the Promised Land. Now, chapter 18, verse 1, we get to see Jethro again. It says, when Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, and that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Okay, let's pause there, because notice the focus for Jethro. The word's been spreading. I mean, when the world superpower, Egypt, is brought to its knees, you better believe that word's going to spread. And sure enough, I mean, the Amalekites knew that they're coming, the Israel's coming along. That's why they wanted to head them off at the pass. Evidently, the Midianites are hearing about this as well, and that's where Jethro comes in. But notice the focus. It wasn't on Moses, nor was it on Israel. It was on the God of Israel. He heard all that God had done. He caught wind that the Lord had brought Israel out. And that's important to see. As far as Jethro was concerned, it wasn't about Moses. It was about Moses' God. But God uses people to perform his work. And that's going to inform the kind of counsel that Jethro will give to Moses in this chapter. In verse 2, then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back, and her two sons. Now, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, that weird story when Moses is heading down to Egypt and he hasn't circumcised his son and uh, God is re ready to slay him because of that oversight. Zipporah steps in and performs the circumcision herself, right? Bloody husband thou art unto me. Interesting story. Uh, but Zor Zipporah is with him. Now at some point, and the text doesn't tell us when, at some point though, Moses sends Zipporah and the boys back home to Midian, back home to Jethro. It makes sense. I mean, if he's scared to death to go see Pharaoh himself, why on earth are you dragging your wife and kids along with you? Well, maybe it was because he was so scared. And so the suggestion in most, among most scholars is it was when Aaron came that Moses most likely sent Zipporah away. She was my help meet. Well, now I have another help meet for me, and I want to protect the one that matters most. So honey, go home. Okay, you'll be safe there. But here, Jethro brings her and the boys to be back with their, with their husband and father. In fact, we finally learn the second son's name. So verse 3, she brings her two sons, of which the name of the one was Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien in a strange land. Gershom, Ger is the word for alien or stranger or foreigner. And Moses was a stranger in a strange land. The name of the other was Eliezer. For the God of my father, said he, was mine help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Eliezer is such a beautiful name. Ezer is the word for help. Remember Eve, the help meet, Ezer, Kenegdo, 
Well, Eli is my God, so Eliezer is my God is help. The only kind of help that will get us through the kinds of challenges that a Pharaoh would present us with. But to be reminded of that every time you call your son. I love these two boys' names and the reminders that they're giving to Moses. In fact, if you think about commandments, since that will be our focus for today, the first great commandment is to love God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength. And if I know that my God is my help, then how can I not love him and want to serve him with all the help he has given me? That's Eliezer. And Gershom, the stranger in a strange land, if I remember that, then the second great commandment comes naturally because I remember who I am and where I've been and where I come from and that I, I need the support of my fellow man, and, which means they need mine also. Again, if you're trying to keep the two great commandments upon which hang all the law and the prophets, all the other commandments we'll see today, then remember Gershom and love your neighbor and remember Eliezer and love the Lord your God. The vertical component, the horizontal component, there's taking up the cross daily, I can keep these commandments because I remember all that God has done for me to prepare me to do so. In verse 5, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife unto Moses into the wilderness where he encamped at the mount of God. And he said unto Moses, I, thy father-in-law Jethro, am come unto thee and thy wife and her two sons with her. Now, notice how he describes all that. This is Moses' father-in-law. But he doesn't refer to Zipporah as his daughter, nor does he refer to Gershom and Eliezer as his grandsons. It, it, twice, he said very clearly, this is your wife, these are your sons. And I think that tells us something about extended family. I am so grateful for the blessings of extended family. But they are a step removed from the immediate family. You remember the marriage ceremony in Eden, that the husband and wife are going to leave father and mother and cleave unto one another. A new family unit is, is created that takes the place, or that supersedes, perhaps we could say, the previous family organization. But that doesn't mean we leave them entirely or leave them for good. And thank heaven for that. Because what has this extended family been doing for Moses all this time? everything he would have done if he had been with them. Jethro is providing and protecting and, and caring for his daughter and his grandsons, but he sees them as Moses's family, even more than his own. I'll admit it is a delicate dance for grandparents to walk and for in-laws to walk. Uh, how, how much support can I offer without overstepping my bounds? and not getting in the way of the kinds of immediate family relationships that need to take precedent, that need to take priority. I am grateful for parents and in-laws and brothers and sisters that have children of their own but have become the ultimate aunts and uncles for my own children. I am grateful for my own uncles and aunts. And again, it's like concentric circles. I, this tight-knit, uh, eternal and intimate family circle is the one that needs to hold strongest. But the next ring outward, I'm so grateful for the support and help that can come from extended family. So you grandparents out there, you uncles and aunts, I hope you see just how 
vital you can be, especially in times like this when one parent has to do most of the parenting alone, that you really can step in and make a huge difference. And specifically, what is Jethro doing? As he returns Moses' wife to him and Moses' sons to him, you can do a lot to build family unity on the immediate side. And again, it's tricky. There's the dance to, 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 to work on. But what can I do to help them be more unified? What support can I offer? And specifically, how can I help them all get to the mountain of God? That is a place where grandparents can have a profound influence. Oh, inviting posterity to climb the mountain with them, to return them to the presence of God. Now, verse 7, Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and they came into the tent. This sounds like a wonderful relationship. Maybe it's easy for Jethro to be that kind of father-in-law because Moses is this kind of son-in-law. They would have had a lot in common, both men of God. Moses, the prophet of the God of Israel, and Jethro, the high priest of Midian, both Abrahamic in their backgrounds. To, to see the mutual love as they kiss each other, the, multi, the mutual respect as Moses does obeisance, pays honor to, to Jethro. Even the mutual friendship and interest as they ask about each other's welfare. I love that. I'm, it's amazing to watch the relationships change between from parent to child, more to peer to peer. Uh, it's interesting to associate with my own parents, and it's so different than when I was a kid. It's in some ways so much better because we can see eye to eye and compare notes on raising children. And Did I really put you through all that? And I'm so sorry. And help me with this. And how would you have done? And It's amazing. And I see the same thing with my older children as they grow. And I don't have to raise them so much anymore. I can just enjoy them and learn from them. And as we ask each other of their welfare, there's this equality uh, in the relationship that wasn't there when they were young. Oh, good times ahead as we all grow up. And again, the same is true of, of in-laws. I'm so grateful for the relationship. Well, I'll put it this way. The one complaint I have about, about my in-laws is they have robbed from me all the joy that is supposedly had in telling stereotypical in-law jokes. I can't use any of them. I can't complain about a, a father-in-law or a mother-in-law because they're amazing. And like Jethro... I rejoice in their welfare as they rejoice in mine. And they have been a blessing, as my own parents have to my wife, to, to build our family unity, to support from outside, and yes, to invite us all to join them at the mountain of God. In verse 8, Moses tells his father-in-law all that the Lord had done unto Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake and all the travail that had come upon them by the way and how the Lord delivered them. So just like Jethro had, Moses is giving God all the credit to. Can you believe what God did? It was pretty rough. Again, as there's comparing notes like, man, I, how'd you raise your kids? I've been, it feels like I've been raising oh, two million Israelites for the last little while as we've been going through murmur, murmur, murmur. Wow. Okay. But God has got us through it. And by the time you get to verse 9, Jethro rejoiced for all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel, whom he had delivered out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord, 
who hath delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, who hath delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. There again, shared rejoicing and recognizing the hand of God behind it all. Now in verse 11, Jethro adds one interesting statement. He says, Now I know that the Lord, that is Yahweh, the God of Israel, is greater than all gods, which would include any deities that the Midianites might have been worshiping mistakenly. For in the thing wherein they dealt proudly, he was above them. Remember a few weeks ago when we studied the plagues of Egypt? In every single one, God was targeting one of the gods or goddesses of the Egyptian pantheon. In, in essence, it was anything you can do, I can do better. If there's a god of the Nile, oh, well, watch what I can do. If you boast as a god over the grain, well, I will send the locusts to eat every last kernel. Pharaoh, you boast as being the son of Ra, well, you won't even be able to protect your own son. Or Ra himself as the god of the sun, well, whatever you boast yourself in, I will bring you to your knees in that exact area so that you know that the Lord is greater than all gods. If you or I have a struggle with pride because of the things wherein we deal proudly, then be prepared to be introduced to a God who's even better at that thing than you are. I think there's something powerful about the humility that comes in recognizing that no matter how good we are at any specific thing, God is infinitely better at that than we are. And so why would we try to, to do that work without him? Why would we ever remain independent of the, of the source of the gift to begin with? but someone who knows how to use that gift far better than we ever can. There's some beautiful humility there in verse 11. And then in verse 12, naturally as a result, Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came, and all the elders of Israel, to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. That sounds like the most amazing extended family reunion. There's Moses coming back to Jethro and saying, Oh, Jethro, you've got to meet my brother Aaron. You've got to meet the elders of Israel. These are my people. And God has brought them out of Egyptian bondage so that we can rejoice together. In fact, so that we can break bread together and collectively rejoice in our God, which is your God too, Jethro. We're all Abrahamic here. And for the Israelites and the Midianites to come together rejoicing in the God of their common ancestor. Can you picture Jacob and Esau doing that? Can you picture Isaac and Ishmael doing that? Getting past our denominational differences so that we can rejoice in the things that God has done for us all. Jews and Christians and Muslims rejoicing in the God of of our common ancestor, Abraham, there is cause to rejoice and to break bread together. And then verse 13, with all of that unity behind us, we're ready for the, the real message of chapter 18. And it's the advice that, that Jethro gives to his son-in-law, Moses. Here's how it's set up. Verse 13, it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. 
Party's over. <laughs> We've got to get back to work. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. Sun up to sundown. There is no break from decisions to make and questions to answer and problems to resolve and differences to settle. Oh, this is the life of a leader. And as President Hinckley once said, there is a loneliness to leadership because the buck stops with you. This is going to be the challenge that Jethro notices in Moses and is going to try to help him learn how to better navigate. Because notice what he says in verse 14. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? And all the people stand by thee from morning unto even. So maybe there is a bit of the overprotective father-in-law in Jethro after all. Maybe he's worried about his daughter and grandsons. Like, Moses, no wonder you don't have any time for your wife and kids. You are busy all day long solving everybody else's problems. Now, usually when we look at that verse, the word that jumps off the page is alone. You shouldn't be doing this all by yourself, which explains Jethro's explanation of delegation later on in the chapter. But don't speed forward to get there quite yet. Because notice two other words. They're both the prepositions that are used here. It's when Jethro saw all that Moses did to the people that he asks him, what are you doing to the people? Now, I can picture Moses there going, doing to them? What are you talking about? This is stuff I'm doing for them. This is all about them, and I'm just trying to help. My entire life is spent in their service, so I'm doing for them. To which Jethro, perhaps gently and cautiously, but wisely would have said, Son, are you sure? Are you sure this is for them? Because maybe down deep, part of it is for you. All of those years of feeling inadequate, that time thinking, you needed five rounds of reassurance, right? You didn't want to be useful to God, but then you became useful to Him. He brought you up to speed and and maybe you're trying to make up for lost time. Maybe, I mean, just honestly think about it ourselves. Is there a piece of us that serves others in a self-serving way? And are we doing things for them that really end up being for us? Is there some purification of motive that needs to take place in each of us? And is that something we can work on? Now, I still picture Moses going, okay, even let's get past that. No, this really is for them. And I, this isn't stroking my ego. I'm not pridefully, we'll learn later that Moses is the meekest man imaginable. And so let's give him the benefit of the doubt on this. No, this was not, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them. Okay, I understand. So is that why you're doing everything? And honestly, in our own situation, sometimes our failure to delegate really is noble uh, because they're so inexperienced. And if I can do it for them, I know it'll end up being a better experience. Now, sadly, there might be some truth to that. And so here again, Satan is playing to your strengths rather than your weakness. You're so good at what you do that you know Oh, you can just bless people if you'll keep doing it and doing it for them. Let me, let me take care of that. Perhaps you've been burned too many times by proof 
<laughs> that if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. And you've done so well at those things that you can just keep doing it and do it for everyone all around you. The problem there is you are doing it alone and they'll never get better at it as a result. Perhaps the question we should be asking is not how will it turn out, but more how will they turn out? How will these students I'm teaching or these youth that I'm leading or these children that I'm raising, how will they turn out? if I'm the one that ends up doing everything for them. Now for this, uh, two statements, one from Elder Bednar and one from Elder Maxwell. Elder Bednar is an expert at this. He got his PhD in organizational behavior. Okay, so he knows this from an academic and a business background and not just from a spiritual one. He understands the importance of delegation. So he's constantly trying to lead people to be as qualified to do things as he is. In fact, when he was a very young stake president in Arkansas, he said that he'd just been called and the general authority said to him, President Bednar, your first order of business is to train a multitude of men to take your place. And it jolted him. He's like, what? I've been stake president for like two minutes and you're already planning on my successor? Well, yeah, the Lord needs to be thinking of those kinds of things. How long will you be here? We never know. And he wasn't there long. So good thing he, was, he spent his time preparing other people, giving them responsibility and accountability and support and helping them become as a result of it. At one point, he even talked to, to church employees and warned them. Sometimes we don't delegate because it would take too long. I can do it better and faster myself. And you know what? He said, you're right. The first time, maybe the second but by the third, now you're wasting your own time. It would have been faster if you'd slowed down the first time and taught someone, trained them, helped them get up to speed. Yeah, they might not do it as well as you the first time, but give them time. And yes, it would have taken more time to do it that way than just get it done yourself. But since you have to keep doing it every time after that, no, at a certain point there's a break even and then you're in the loss column. And you should have prepared somebody else to do what you find yourself still having to do every single time. That's a problem. A problem not only Elder Bednar saw, but that Elder Maxwell saw. And he put it this way in a training meeting he gave to church leaders in conjunction with General Conference years and years ago. Amazing statement. He said, some of our youth are so much done for, they are almost done in. If youth are too underwhelmed, they are more likely to be overwhelmed by the world. Functionally, how many deacons and teachers' quorum presidencies consist of merely calling on someone to offer a prayer or pass the sacrament? Brethren, these really are special spirits, and they can do things of significance if given a chance. I love how he put that. Truly Maxwellian. So much done for that they end up being done in? They're underwhelmed, so they end up being overwhelmed by the world. I have seen that play out all too often. You see, early in my career, I taught seminary, so I was with teenagers. I was in young men's presidencies and wards and stakes, and so I worked with teenagers, with youth. But now my days are spent with my institute students and with young single adults. And what's interesting is, and what's tragic, what didn't have to be this way, is watching young adults who are p 
paralyzed by the choices that they have to make. And the 20s is the decade of decision. So they have huge decisions to make. What am I going to study? What am I going to be when I grow up? Who am I going to marry? What's my family life going to be like? Uh, how do I navigate life spiritually in a secular world? Major decisions. But they're paralyzed to make those decisions because they've never been given opportunity to make significant decisions before. And that's on us as parents or as leaders or as teachers. I would much rather have a 12-year-old choose the wrong counselor than a 24-year-old choose the wrong spouse. Now that's a stark way to put it, but let it sink in. Are we getting in the way of youth presidencies in classes and quorums? Because we don't want them, well, we want them to have a better experience and I can make sure that I, that I give them that. And I don't want, well, let me lead them in this direction. Oh, don't make that choice because it won't turn out as good. And so what are we doing? We're convincing them that, they, that their own opinions aren't valued or their own feelings can't be trusted. And as they grow and then get to a point where they have to make the decisions on their own, they're unable to do so because they've never been given the chance. Let them lead. Let them try. Let them fall. Let them fail. And be there to help pick them up every time. Now, I'll admit that can be taken to an extreme. And I've seen that happen too. Now, I don't want to overgeneralize. I certainly don't want to gender stereotype. But in my own experience, I have seen that men tend to be on one side of the contrary and women tend to be on the other of this particular set. And it's this contrary of, of letting others lead versus supporting them in that leadership. How much independence versus how much dependence? Or can we actually balance with some form of interdependence? See, here's the issue. Maybe we learned this on the male side from the Boy Scouts of America, because they always talked about having a boy-led program, which is a good thing. It's let them be uh, patrol leaders and senior patrol leaders and quartermasters and, and chaplains and all these other areas of responsibility that they can take on. But they're not the scoutmaster, and that's a good thing. Now, I have seen it go a little too far where it's, well, I'll put it this way. The scout motto is be prepared. And that's a good motto for before the fact. After the fact, I think the de facto uh, motto becomes, well, you live and learn. And I've been on a lot of campouts that weren't enough be prepared. And so they ended up being a lot of, well, you live and learn. Uh, with my oldest son as as I was letting him know how hard it is to untie frozen shoelaces uh, based on jumping in the stream with your shoes and socks on right before nightfall on what would end up being a very cold camp out. Yeah, and then leaving your shoes outside the tent door. And then when you have to get up in the morning to use the restroom, uh, yeah, you're not getting into those shoes anytime quick. Well, you live and learn. And thankfully he lived, but yes, he had a lot to learn. And we all do. Now, like I said, I've often seen young men's leaders on the too cold side of the Goldilocks zone and not giving the youth enough support. It's like, well, let the youth teach in quorum and in class. 
Oh, great. That saves me a lesson. So in two weeks, uh, there's the lesson. Uh, you can look and find some stuff online and good luck with that. And then we wash the hands and we're off. And sadly, the quorum suffers from an, an ill-prepared lesson. And worst of all, that young man suffers because he was trying his best but had no support and didn't know what he was doing. Don't just let them teach. Teach them how to teach. Let them be a junior companion and then slowly shift the center of gravity. Now, if the male problem is too cold, sometimes I've seen that the female problem is too hot. And if the, the young men's leaders are delegating everything and not giving enough support, sometimes the young women's leaders aren't delegating enough to begin with. But, but girls camp has to be amazing. It has to be life-changing. And it always is. But is it because we're doing it all? But we're doing it for them. I know. But are you doing something to them that's negative? By not giving them the chance to try. To spread their wings and to build the strength that comes in, in flapping. Give them the opportunity to do so. I think too often the young adults that are leaving the church because they think the church has nothing to offer them, haven't been given the opportunity to offer something to the church along the way. We can do so much more for our youth if we stop doing so much for our youth. I hope the Spirit is clarifying those prepositions for you. I hope that He's giving you some specific instruction on more support to offer when necessary and, and less hand-holding or more, you can do this. I know that you can. There's actually a book that I wish were required reading for every young man and young women's presidency in the church. I gave it to all my seminary teachers when I trained seminary teachers in the South. I read it to my own children when they were teenagers uh, because it's a book written for teenagers by teenagers. Two brothers, uh, evangelical Christians, who were raised by wonderful parents who knew that their children could do incredible things if given the opportunity. And so they gave them the opportunity. The book is called Do Hard Things, but I like the subtitle even more. The subtitle reads, A Teenage Rebellion Against Low Expectations. <laughs> Don't you love that? And like I said, it's teenagers writing it as they realized, how come nobody expects anything of us? How come, oh, I don't know, brushing our teeth and making our bed are, are considered these incredible accomplishments? I'm 17 for crying out loud. Give me a chance to do something amazing and then get out of my way and I'll do it. And these two boys did. That book is inspiring. And to think about what Moses is going to do for the people if he stops doing all these things to them and keeping them away from the great expectations that God wants them to grow into. Oh, it's amazing. Well, let's just keep going. Verse 15, Moses says to his father-in-law, here's a little pushback, okay, dad. He says, because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Now, careful, Moses, what did you just say there? I do make them know the statutes. 
But you just said you're the one that always judges between them. So are they really coming to understand the law itself? Or just coming to rely on your interpretation and implementation of the law? You understand the difference there? You see, if they really knew the law as well as you think you're teaching it to them, then wouldn't they be able to govern themselves? Remember that quote from Joseph Smith? How do you lead such a great people, such large numbers? Oh, it's easy. I just teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. Well, if I've really taught them correct principles, that's the beauty. They'll know how to govern themselves. And so here when Moses is saying, oh, I, I let them know how to do what, what you know, I know, let them know what the law is. Oh, careful, there's a difference. Because they're still reliant upon you. You see, if, think about it in terms of math, okay? That if I've really mastered the concept, then I understand what the formula does and how it works. That way I can plug in different numbers and always come up with the right answer. Or take it up a level. And beyond formulas, how about story problems? Because if I really understand the concepts going on here, then in, I'm given a certain situation. Here's my story problem. If I understand the principles well enough, then I'll know which formula applies to this situation. I'll know which numbers to plug into that formula. I'll know what the answer to the formula or to the equation is, and I'll know what that means back into the story. And by the way, that's scripture study. It's learning principles, that's the formula, to be used in story problems. They're actually couched in stories to begin with, right? And that's why we're trying to find relevance and meaning, trying to find principles within these stories. It's, it's reducing a story down to a principle, which can then be brought into my own story and reconstituted to help me know what I'm supposed to do in my own circumstance. That's math, that's scripture study, that's cooking. It's not just following a recipe. It's one thing to teach people how to follow a recipe. It's another thing to teach people how to cook and then let them just run with it. So are you teaching them really? Think about it in terms of this verse from Helaman 16. This one haunts me as a teacher, as a church leader, and as a parent. You see, you have all these skeptics at the end of Helaman. Uh, the five years are about up, right? And will, do we trust the promise that Samuel the Lamanite gave about the coming of Christ? And these skeptics are, are planting seeds of doubt among the faithful. And they say this to them. It, it's scary. It says they, the, those leaders and teachers, they will, by the cunning and the mysterious arts of the evil one, work some great mystery, which we cannot understand which will keep us down to be servants to their words and also servants unto them. For we depend upon them to teach us the word. And thus will they keep us in ignorance if we will yield ourselves unto them all the days of our lives. Now, do you see how their skepticism has grown into cynicism? And now they're questioning the motives of those teachers and leaders. But how did it get there? Oh, beware, be careful. They're going to weave some mystery before you. And since you cannot think for yourself, since you are totally reliant upon them to, uh, to teach you the word, to explain the word, they can keep you down under their thumbs the rest of your lives. You'll be servants unto them because you're too dependent. Now, can you guess why that would cause me concern as a teacher? Believe me, as much as I love to teach the word, 
I don't want my students to become dependent upon my word. I want them to learn how to discover these truths for themselves. I hope you're sensing that as we go through these lessons together. Because if I'm getting in your way, then please stop watching. I try to explain how I'm finding these things. I try to explain what it means to turn aside to see and receive a message instead of just some heat from the burning bush. I try to explain some of the places I turn to for as resources. How to get some insight into Hebrew when you don't speak Hebrew. Uh, I'm not just trying to teach you, I'm trying to train you. And we'll see more of that difference in a moment. It's the age-old teach someone to fish instead of just catch them fish to eat. I'm hoping that we're all learning how to feed ourselves for a lifetime. And that goes for my students, it goes for the people I lead, it goes for my children. I had a great conversation with my oldest daughter once as she was feeling that I was, being, I was micromanaging something in her life. And I just asked her, how do I feel about independence? And she laughed and said, okay, yeah, you're right. You, you really aren't wanting us to, be, to remain dependent upon you. You are a fan of independence, yours as well as ours. And you do give us room to, to roam and room to grow. And okay, I guess you're not micromanaging after all then what is it what you're doing? And then we had a great conversation. But there's one other element in that verse I want to hit before we go on to the next. And it's when Moses says, they come to me to inquire of God. And isn't that what a prophet's for, Dad? I mean, aren't I supposed to be the middleman? That I give the word of God to them and I can then bring their questions back to God and so on and and I picture Jethro saying, yes, you're right. I am a high priest as well. I get it. However, if they're coming to you to inquire of God, then who are they really after? They want to connect with God. And they only came to you because they think you can point them to Him. They're right. Then do it. Really point them to Him. Connect them with the source of all guidance. The source that you're getting yours from. With that in mind, can I share one of my favorite verses from John in the New Testament? It's about a a group of Christian pilgrims. They're Greeks, and they've come to Jerusalem for one of the feasts. And they specifically seek out Philip, one of the apostles. Now, why him? Well, Philip is a Greek name, so perhaps there's some kind of connection there. The Greeks are coming. Oh, Greek apostle? Uh, I know he's Jewish. Whatever. Uh, He's closest to our culture, and so let's, let's come after him. Now, but the way it's phrased is profound. This is John 12, 20 and 21. There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The the same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him. Now, if you stopped there, you'd think, wow, of course. They want me. I mean, I am an apostle after all. And I'm a person of importance. And wow, I feel so flattered that they would want me. They desire me. Well, sorry, Philip. There's a comma after that, not a period. So let's finish the verse. They desired him, comma, saying, sir, we would see Jesus. Do you see what they're really after? Yes, we desire you, Philip, but only for one purpose. It's because our real desire is to be with Christ. But we don't know him yet, but you do. And since we know you and you know him, will you please 
connect us and then get out of our way? Will you serve that divine purpose? That verse has had such a profound effect upon me throughout my life of teaching. Because the longer I've taught and have had experience with people desiring to learn, that verse has helped keep my motives pure. Because I know that if they ever desire to learn from me, it's only because they trust, they hope, they pray that I can introduce them to Jesus. I hope that's at, that that is happening. I pray that it is. And, and to keep that in perspective, any time that we are a middleman or middlewoman, they're only coming to you so that you can bring them to God. So please do so. And then get out of their way. Now, in verse 17... Jethro, we're getting some pushback, right? Back and forth. And what are you doing to them? To them, it's for them. Well, but what about, I bet I'm doing, okay, I, I get it. But Jethro comes back one more time. He says to Moses, the thing that thou doest is not good. And again, Moses would probably put his hands up. And say, what are you talking about? This is so self-sacrificial. I don't know what more good I could possibly be doing than trying to resolve these differences and, and, and be the go-between between God and his people. This is good, believe me. And yet, Jethro explains himself in verse 18, Thou wilt surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee, for the thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. There's that alone word again. You can't do it by yourself. It's too heavy. Didn't chapter 17 teach you that? That you needed Aaron and her beside you, bearing you up with the rod of God? So what is it that isn't good about what you're doing? Son, don't get me wrong. I know you're doing good. You might be doing too much of it, though. And so what makes this good work not so good is that it's unsustainable. And that's what I'm worried about. Your good works will never become great works because you'll burn out before you get to that next level. You'll burn out and they won't be able to govern themselves, which then leaves them leaderless. They're actually worse off than before. You, you gave them so much, but they never learned how to feed themselves. And that isn't good. Now, I want you to think about that, the unsustainability of our goodness. If we don't, I don't want to say ration our love or ration our service. That's not what I mean. But training and developing in other people the ability to, to take care of themselves a little more, if that makes sense. Let's go back to the two parts that are mentioned there. What he's worried about is wearing away. But it's not just you wearing out, Moses. It's the people wearing out too. What? How are they going to wear out? I'm doing everything for them. I can, I can see on the first one, not on the second. Well, let's take them one by one. Thou wilt wear out. Now, I remember a few years ago, there was an optional in-service that was offered to seminary institute teachers in Salt Lake. And I was intrigued by the title. Someone was going to be coming who was an expert on something I'd never heard of before. But as soon as I heard the term, I knew exactly what it was because I was feeling it. 
It was an expert coming in to do some training on compassion fatigue. I'll bet you know what that feels like too, even if you've never heard of it before. And I thought, there's experts in compassion fatigue? Well, I know there's victims of it because I think I feel it on occasion because there will always be more people to help than time to give them. I have been feeling that keenly as I've been coming to know incredible people more and more around the world. And the more people you know, the more people there are to help. And my heart is drawn to help them. It's drawn to help you. Many of you have had the courage to reach out and ask for that help, and I'm grateful for that. And I do carve out time every single week, whether it's to do a fireside for a larger group or to do a one-on-one -on -one Zoom call with someone in the middle of a crisis of faith or have somebody come over to my home and sit in this very room and just talk about their questions and their struggles. Uh, that's been taking up more and more and more of my time. And that's a good thing, but I do wonder if Jethro would say, is it? Yes, it's a good thing. Is it a sustainable thing? And the more invitations and requests and, and heartfelt petitions, please help my son, he left the church, or my husband is really wrestling with doubts and I don't know what to do, or my ward is lost and can you come speak to all of us? I wish I could say yes to every single invitation. I really wish I could. But I can't. And the more no's I have to say, I've realized, and I've said this to some of you, that my heart keeps writing checks that my schedule just can't cash. And I don't want compassion fatigue to ultimately just end the chance to be of service. So how do I do this? How do you set, well, here's the contrary. How do I balance love and limits? How do I, how do I balance brotherhood with boundaries? It's really hard to do. My wife struggles with it as much, if not more than I do, because she has way more compassion and empathy than I do. She's just wired that way. She is an empath. I just work on empathy. She, she, it's what she's, it's how she's wired. It's what she's made of which makes her one of the best counselors, therapists, uh, conversation partners, friends. She's an addiction recovery counselor now, and she is changing, more than changing, she's saving lives. And I just want her to be able to do it sustainably. And as she and I have wrestled with this, me sustaining my ministry and her sustaining hers, and recognizing within each other and in ourselves the dangers of compassion fatigue, there's definitely that sense of thou wilt wear away and all the good you're doing will have to come crashing to a halt. It's the talk that Elder Holland gave about mental health. If, you're not, if you don't take the time to be well, then you will take the time to be sick. There's no avoiding it. So how do we navigate this along the way? Well, so much of that is exactly what Jethro is explaining here. And what he's about to explain about delegation. But so far, it's, he hasn't even got to the delegation part. So far, it's more of the, are you teaching correct principles so they can govern themselves? The better you do that, the less there will be to delegate. And the less there will be that you have to do yourself. Are you getting them up to speed? And that's where the second concern comes in. They will wear away as well. Now, this one's less intuitive. 
They, what do you mean they'll wear away? They don't have to do anything. I'm the one that's doing everything for them. Okay, to them. How would that lead to them wearing, wearing out? Well, think about it. Have you ever been so reliant upon someone else that it's exhausting because they just can't get to you yet? I feel that way when it comes to like being on a waiting list for some medical specialist. And it's like, seriously? Six months out? What am I supposed to do between now and then? Because I do not have that skill set and there's no way for me to gain it. There's got to be a better way. And I feel I'm wearing myself out trying to do things I'm not trained to do. Nobody taught me. And it is so frustrating when that takes place. They will surely wear out because they never develop their own strength, their own stamina, their, their own expertise or endurance. We never gave them the chance to do it. And so that's on us, not on them. I had an embarrassing experience with that years ago. When my kids were really little, I, I discovered the fastest way to get through breakfast is just to feed them all myself. myself. It, it, you've been there, okay? If you have little kids, letting them feed themselves takes forever. It's so messy. It's just unproductive. And I'm big on productivity. There's stuff to do. And so I discovered the best way to do it, instead of making a bowl of oatmeal for each child or a bowl of cereal or whatever it is, just make one. And with one bowl and one spoon, just line up all of the, the hungry faces. Okay, everybody open your mouth and it's just scoop, 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 and then back to the front. Scoop, scoop, scoop. And by the time you get back, they've already eaten the last bite and you're just rotating around. It's awesome. Plus, you only have one bowl and one spoon to wash when you're done. Genius, right? Well, for me, but not for them. And it hit me one day when one of my older children said, and he was old enough to speak, Dad, will you feed me? And I remember going, what? There's food? Go make, make yourself some cereal. You, you know how to do the oatmeal, right? And it's like, well, can you just feed me? Now, the fact he could say that <laughs> lets you know his age. And I realized I have done them a horrible disservice. I don't think it's just laziness on their part, though that probably factors in. It may simply be, I can't do it as well as you. And boy, did that jolt me into some corrective behavior. And I found myself far more often, let me show you how to do this. And then next time when you say, well, can you do it again? You do it better than I do. And all, now my children roll their eyes. I usually say, I'm only better at it because I've had more practice. So guess what you get? More practice. I'm here to help. I can show you support. But I don't want you to forever rely upon me. Jesus says the same thing with his apostles. When they're unable to heal, for example. And he says, how long will I be with you? You have to learn to do this on your own. And that's what Jethro is trying to get Moses to be able to accomplish. I'll confess this and then we'll, we'll move on. Because I work so often with people in faith crisis, I have learned that it's far more important than answering their specific question, which I still try to do, is teaching them the general principles of faith and doubt and finding truth. I'll, yes, we'll deal with specific things about plural marriage or the details of race and the priesthood. I'm happy to go there with anybody. But let me explain some big picture things about the stages of faith, creation, fall, atonement. So you'll know where you are in the journey and how your perspective will change as you grow. 
Let's talk about proving contraries. Why do you think I talk about it almost every lesson? Because this principle has so much explanatory power that what's going to happen the next time you have another question? If you only come back to me with the next question and the next question and the next question, then I know I, I didn't teach you very well. I may have answered your question, but I didn't teach you the correct principles by which you could then answer your own. Now, I'm not trying to scare any of you away from reaching out for help, but I am pleading with you to try to develop within yourself a certain degree of independence, not just so that I don't wear out, so that you don't. And that way you can also then be a benefit to your circle of influence. Because we need that. I have confessed this to my students, that in these classes, I've been teaching the last two semesters a class of my own creating called Navigating Trials of Faith, or Navigating Faith Crisis. And I'll tell them, this is partly selfishly motivated, because I cannot keep up with all the starfish that need help finding their way back into the sea. And so I am desperate to create an army of chaplains because a chaplain not only knows that has the know-how, but also has the heart of a pastor to want to go out and, and save the wounded or the war-weary that are out there. My friends, I invite you to enlist in the chaplaincy of Christ, to learn these principles, to be able to help other people that are struggling and that are falling away from their faith. It's, it is going to take an army, and it's an army of chaplains, so please join. And I, I hope eventually to film the lessons that I'm teaching in those classes, so that hopefully you feel more empowered to be able to be a blessing elsewhere. So that's not me wearing out. It's not you wearing out. M Moses, it's, I'm worried about you, and I'm worried about the people. We've got to figure this out. So Jethro gets back to his advice, verse 19. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou to the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. Now, it would take an amazing amount of courage to offer some corrective criticism to a prophet. But Jethro is his father-in-law, so well, maybe he can get away with it. But to, to counsel a counselor... To lead a leader, thankfully, Jethro had the courage to do so. But the way he says it, I'll give you counsel, gulp, God will be with thee. So he's the one who will ultimately ratify my counsel if, if he feels like it. Uh, so turn to him. I'm not trying to tell you this is, well, this is how you need to do it. It's, here's some gentle advice. See if God's with me on this. Now, I realize you're going to be to for the people to Godward. Now, that's a weird phrase. To God, to be to Godward? Well, just rearrange the syllables and it makes more sense. To Godward just means toward God. Okay? So, Moses, your position is to be for the people toward God. So, that when they're looking to you, they're really wanting to look to Christ. Again, Philip's experience, right? They're looking to God. You're just the middleman, and so, well, hey, he's the one that can speak for God, so I'll go to him. Well, if you can be to Godward, if you can be an arrow instead of the final destination, and teach them how you find truth, 
This is where I'm going. I'm going toward God. You want to you wanna follow me? I'll show you the way. My wife actually asked me that once. I was probably too busy neglecting Zipporah and neglecting Gershom and Eliezer, too busy helping everybody else's kids and not doing enough to help my own. And my wife asked the most profound question. She said, honey, does it ever cross your student's mind that you have questions sometimes? And does it ever cross their mind that you do things to find the answer? I just, it was an eye-opener for me. I actually got an email from a, a wonderful former institute student of mine who said he was in the middle of faith crisis. And he said, oh, I know what to do. Just, I got, just got to email Brother Halverson. He'll have an answer. And then he said, but then I thought, well, actually, what would Brother Halverson do in this situation? I showed my wife that email. I'm like, somebody asked it. Somebody, ah, they're learning. And he had the most incredible experience navigating his own faith crisis and coming out stronger than ever on the other side. It was months later, he did send me an email, but it wasn't with his question. It was with his experience. It was amazing. And so to be to Godward, I'm just going toward God. You want to come? I'll show you how. I've actually said this to my wife as she has wrestled with how do I do this sustainably? And I have said to her, I just try to hold on to people long enough that I can connect them to Christ. That there's that horizontal reach and come to trust me and me love them and understand each other. There's this empathy. But then connecting them to Christ, that's sustainable. That's better for me and far better for them. And if it's like, okay, you ready? You understand what we've just done? You guys are good now. I'm going to pass the baton. Okay, I'm going to let, start letting go. Feel the center of gravity shift. Are you, are you holding on? You good? Now, in her world, that's not less religious, right? Well, addiction recovery is intensely religious uh, once you have the eyes to see. But it's connect them to the principles. Connect them to the 12 steps. Connect them to a community of support. Connect them with their better selves. Are you good? You ready? Because I need to... I'll be here for you, but I need to move on because there's another patient or there's another person that's coming into the bishop's office. So I'm connected to this repentant sinner and now I've connected you to God and now I need to go help somebody else. We good? You understand this? So be to Godward for them, but do not be God to them. There is a huge difference between being to Godward and being God. I am not the ultimate source of anyone's help. Uh, no bishop, no teacher, no leader, no parent is. But can we connect them and then step aside to go help the next person in need? Now, verse 20, thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk and the work that they must do. I love that verse. Great counsel from Jethro. Teach them, show them the work they're going to have to do. That is teach them the correct principles and let them govern themselves. The governing themselves part is that last line. Yeah, there's work you're going to have to do. Sorry, you need to learn to make your own oatmeal. And yes, feed yourself. You need to learn how to study scripture and gain your own insight. You need to learn to lead. So let me lead you long enough to show you how. And again, those verbs at the beginning, to teach them and to show them. Is there a difference there? I think so. Remember in 2 Nephi 32, Nephi in 2 Nephi 31 gave him his last lecture. 
It's the doctrine of Christ. Faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, endure to the end. We good? Because I'm out. Okay? And then drop the mic and amen. Chapter 31 ends with an amen. Like, Nephi's ready to be done. I honestly think that 32 and 33 are afterthoughts. Because the people just wouldn't let him leave. Why? Because they still had questions. And so, like, the hands start creeping up at the beginning of chapter 32. Like, wait, wait, wait. Enduring to the end takes a long time. And I have a lot of specific questions about what to do then. <sighs> I already gave you the answers. No, you didn't. You just gave us this really simple five steps, faith, repentance, baptism, Holy Ghost, and endure to the end. Oh, yeah, and you talked about scripture study in there. Exactly. That is your answer for all the specific circumstances. So this is what he says in 2 Nephi 32. First, he says, feast upon the words of Christ. For the words of Christ will tell you all things that you should do. A few verses later, he says, oh, and seek the Spirit. That's why gift of the Holy Ghost was so essential. Because the Holy Ghost will show you all things that you should do. Do you catch the difference? The scriptures will tell you, and the Spirit will show you. I love that. I've often said to my students that the standard works are your cloud of witnesses. And you come to the scriptures with your questions, with your situations, and you ask your cloud of witnesses for their advice. And if you know the scriptures well enough, they start, hands starting to go up. And Esther has some advice for you. And Nephi wants to tell you something. And Peter's got a great word. And even Isaiah has something to say if you have the guts to let him speak. They're going to tell you what they have already said in scripture. But that doesn't always seem totally relevant until the Spirit comes in to translate. And the Spirit takes what you've been told in Scripture and begins to show you what that looks like in your own life. That's how you reconstitute principles. Scriptures, you take a story and concentrate them down to the principle. That's what we've been doing all, all year long. And then you take that principle, transplant it into your own life, which then gets reconstituted of, oh, this is how that principle fits in my situation. Okay? Uh, it goes from the them there then to the me here now when the scriptures tell and then the scripture and then the spirit shows this is what it looks like to me. Make sense? So Moses, how are you going to do this? How are you going to help the people? You're going to teach them everything you can and then you're going to show them, demonstrate it. There, here's a living example. Okay, Act it out. Show them what it looks like. And both of those are really important. Over the years, I've asked a lot of my return missionary students uh, what the MTC stands for. And originally, they look at me like, really? Duh, it's the Missionary Training Center. And I'll always go, are you sure? Are you sure that's the T? Does the T stand for training? Are you positive? And because I'm like questioning them, they start second guessing themselves and like, uh, isn't it? I'm pretty, I could have sworn it's... It is the Missionary Training Center, right? And I'll laugh and go, yes. But what if it was called the Missionary Teaching Center? You don't have to change the acronym, but would it change the approach of what happens inside? You see, I taught at the MTC, and there were days I wished that it were the Missionary Teaching Center, because you know me, I love to teach. And I'd gather my missionaries and just want to, we'd spend like way too much time on gospel study, because I love it, and I just wanted them to understand the gospel really well. But I realized that sometimes in doing that, if I spent too much time on scripture study, did I not spend enough time in Spanish instruction? Or did I spend too much time explaining Spanish rules and not giving them enough time to practice it? Ah, oh, because they're not as good at it as I am. 
Well, of course not yet. Get out of their way. Let them practice. I'd rather like teach them gospel principles than train them on how to teach it themselves. <sighs> then, then go teach seminary institute and get out of the MTC because this is a training center, not a teaching center. Mm, touche. You catch the difference? Medical school is a training center more than a teaching center because doctors are going to have to do these things. They can't just sit back and go, oh yeah, I, I, want, I listened to a lecture on your, on your sickness once. It was really, really eye-open, fascinating. Well, can you help me? Ah, I've never done it before. You understand the problem? So are we teaching the youth? Are we teaching our children? If so, good. But are we training them? If we're teaching them, great. Are we showing them? Are we acting it out? Are we demonstrating? Are we modeling? Are we letting them practice? Are we giving them feedback? Are we increasing their ability rather than just filling their minds with things they don't know how to put into practice? Do you get a sense how much I love Exodus 18? I hope I'm not belaboring these points, but if I'm speaking to the choir because you've already mastered it, maybe it's because I need to be preaching this more to myself because this doesn't come intuitively. I just want to do it all myself and, and I need to get better. Well, let's keep going because sometimes even the best instruction and even the best training can leave people with blind spots. And I thought I knew, but this situation was a little out of my area of expertise. So notice verse 21. Moreover, dad continues, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. Now think about that. I mean, Aaron and her, they were right beside you against the Amalekites. I bet they could handle a thousand people to be responsible for. Oh, Joshua down below, he seems like he's ready to take command of an army. He already did. If there's someone that you're still working with that needs a little bit more teaching and showing, a little bit more training, then make them a, a captain or a ruler of 10, kind of junior companions and senior companions. And just a small group, that's your mission district. They're not ready for, to be a zone leader yet. Or that's your deacon's quorum presidency or your young women's class presidency. Run with that. It's wonderful. And as they get better and better at it, then you'll have a multitude of people from whom to call your rulers of 50 or your rulers of 100. Let them grow up in God. That's how it works, Moses. But notice the description of those people. They are able and they fear God. That's a great combination. Remember Elder Bednar's counsel from a prior uh, apostle that it's good to be, to be Christ-like, but it's better to be Christ-like and competent? <laughs> yeah. That's, have you ever had a leader that was one without the other? Some are totally Christ-like, but have no idea what they're doing. Others, oh, they, are, they know exactly how to accomplish the work, but they're just not very Christ-like about it. That is a set of contraries that needs to be proven. The best leaders will, be, will have both. So work on your skill set, but also develop your spiritual gifts. Work on your competence, but also your compassion so that you can ultimately be able and fear God, be righteous, be worthy at the same time. 
The next one, men of truth. Real leaders are willing to speak truth. And speak the truth in love. There's that contrary in Ephesians. They are willing to have the hard conversations, to, to pass along the hard sayings who can hear them. That was Jesus. That was his apostles then and now. They are men of incredible truth. How about the hating covetousness? Again, that goes back to our motives. Are they pure? Or am I doing this for me, even though I'm pretending to be doing it for them? Our leadership cannot be out of covetousness or priestcraft or jealousy or vainglory or pride. It really is for them and for God. And I'm just going to be to Godward long enough to point you the way and then get out of your way. So beautiful. I would also say that that's the same list of attributes required for the captain or the ruler of ten as for the ruler of a thousand. And honestly, I believe that apostles are called from among people that are already living like apostles before they had to. That Relief Society presidents are called from among a group of sisters who are sacrificing of self and serving others even before they are given a responsibility to do so. You understand what I mean by that? Again, those attributes, well, someday. If I, I really would work on my ability. I would try to overcome my covetousness if only I were leading a thousand. But I'm only leading ten. And that's, is it really worth becoming all I'm supposed to become just for ten other people? Yes, it is. If you've ever been one of those ten, <laughs> you know that's true. Well, verse 22, let them, these lesser leaders, those other rulers, let them judge the people at all seasons. Let it always begin with that level and then let it rise if necessary. It shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself and they shall bear the burden with thee. As I was saying about making our good works sustainable, it's the first time in my life I've realized why we typically have to go through a general practitioner before we can get to the specialist. A lot of my kids have specialized challenges that need specialized help. But yes, we have to go to our pediatrician first. And they're like, oh, wait, yeah, this is way out of our league. Go up to Primary Children's Hospital. We're regulars there. Now, what happens here, though, is... Can lesser leaders handle those things? And so often they can. I'll confess this again. There have been times that after a long Zoom call with somebody in faith crisis, uh, it's been a good experience for us both, but I will then go back to my wife and apologize and say, I'm sorry for the last two hours I spent doing something that was helpful, but that could have been done by a ministering sister or a ministering brother. Because none of my so-called expertise was needed in that conversation. What they needed was a listening ear and an open heart. And someone to validate what they've been going through and empathize with their negative emotions. And I did all of that and they felt great. And I never actually had to get into the specific historical weeds because nobody cares as, about history as much as I do. 
<laughs> they didn't they didn't care for the theological wormhole I was about to go down that I love because it's fascinating to me. No, they needed other things. And I was able to give that to them, and I'm grateful. But a ruler of ten could have done that too. And so we all need to become general practitioners. A friend of mine just reached out and and described a lunch that he had had with a friend that was wrestling with some big questions, and I just thought, I wish everybody had a friend like that. He said, there are some questions I couldn't handle. Would you be willing to talk with them? I'm like, I'd be happy to. But thank you so much for proving to this friend that those kinds of conversations can be had on any level. We need to believe that. We need to practice that. At least that's what Jethro suggested. But in verse 23, he says, If thou shalt do this thing, and God command thee so, then thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall also go to their place in peace. Better for you, better for them. Everybody's happy. This is sustainable goodness. And that's my advice. But turn to God and make sure he commands you to do it. That's the best way to give advice. Here's a suggestion. I'm going to leave you with God to determine if that's really what you ought to do. And you see what Jethro's doing? He's been telling, teaching, and now he's showing and modeling and training. I've been giving you some advice. I'm now going to get out of your way. I'm pointing you to God's word, and I'm going to leave you with him. I hope this all works out. I'm sure that it will. And it does. Moses, go and do thou likewise. Okay, it's beautiful. I love Jethro here. Okay? He, he's been my leader and my mentor. I, I need to take his advice better. But, but it's all right here in Exodus 18. In verse 24, Moses thought so too. He hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said, which also proves that he really is that meek man that we'll see more of later. Humble enough as a leader to take the advice of someone else? Okay, no wonder he's going to get good at delegation. He's, it takes that kind of humility to do it. In verse 25, Moses chose able men out of all Israel, just like he was told to. He made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens, and they judged the people at all seasons. The hard causes they brought unto Moses, but every small matter they judged themselves. Now that is good. Better yet, that is sustainable good. And a multitude of leaders are growing up in God that can ultimately lead Israel the way Moses would have. So beautiful. Now there is one detail there that's worth mentioning. He chose men out of all Israel. All Israel. He didn't just think, well, I'm a Levite, and Levites, you know, we just, there's just something good about us. So let's stick with Levites here. Now, that'll be true as far as priesthood is concerned, but all these lesser leaders, all these judges, every tribe deserves to, to have access to, to someone local. And so out of all Israel, I worry sometimes, I've heard it called the STP, same 10 people. And that in many wards, you just kind of rotate around between these same 10 people and they're in all of the presidencies. And once they're, they've grown weary in one, then you just throw them into the mix in a different major calling because they led the primary. Now they can lead the young women or they led the elders quorum. Now they can lead the young men. Well, yeah, but are you expanding capability or are you just wearing out those select few? 
No, call them out of all Israel. I remember a new bishopric being called in a ward I served in once and being pleasantly surprised is an understatement. I was joyously surprised, but I was surprised. I remember some of the, the people that were called into the bishopric, counselors and, and executive secretary, ward clerk, and so on, they were all worthy. That, it wasn't worthiness that was my surprise. It was their own sense of, like, me? I mean, they're the kind of people, if, if you're wondering, wow, I don't know if I ever would have called that person, they're probably feeling the same thing. Me? Who am I? I can't do this. Well, just like Moses had been. God does this with everybody. But I'm so, I was so impressed with the bishop's willingness to truly open his, the, the possibilities to everyone in the ward and say, Heavenly Father, who are my counselors supposed to be? What? Really? Okay, that's going to come as a shock to him and to pretty much everybody else. But yeah. I actually had one sister say that when a, a bunch of people in the ward were interviewed for a major calling, and she said her husband was called in to be interviewed, not given the calling, and she, she thought there was no way he was going to be called into that. He's worthy, but that was so far above his head as far as how, how he felt about himself. But maybe that's why the Lord knew he needed to be called in just to be considered, because it changed his own self-perception. Wait, God would even consider me for a calling like that? Really? He does look at all Israel? And we need to also. Well, verse 27, the chapter ends. And Moses let his father-in-law depart. And he went his way into his own land. That's a great way to end this chapter. This man who's been a shadow leader for Moses himself. He, this man who had given such profound and, and important advice. Is now ready to move on to probably give some other advice to some other people. And Moses let him go. Okay, I think I can do this on my own. Well, because I'm not on my own anymore. Thank you so much for that. I'm going to go put it into practice. You taught me. You showed me. And I'm going to go govern myself. And I'm going to do just what you showed me for other people. I wonder sometimes if leaders have a hard time delegating because we just won't let them. I had this interesting conversation in stake bishopric training once and asked the stake president and the fellow bishoprics in our stake, who are the three most important people in the ward as far as leadership is concerned. And I said, well, let me rephrase it. How would, if you ask that question of most members, what would they say? And I think almost everyone in the church would say, oh, the bishop, first counselor, second counselor. It's the bishopric. They're up on the stand on Sundays. They run the show. Okay, let me just throw this out as a possibility. What if the right answer were, oh, the three people who run the ward Again, most important is not the right way to put it. The three people who run the ward, the bishop, the Relief Society president, and the elders quorum president. And especially the way things have been uh, reorganized within ward councils and with the various responsibilities of proclaiming the gospel and redeeming the dead and taking care of the poor and the needy and, and working with the youth and everything else. I think that's the right answer. In fact, those three have so much on their plate that each of those three need two counselors to just be able to bear up their arms, right? 
The bishop has an Aaron and her. The release study president has an Aaron and her. The elders quorum president has an Aaron and her. And boy, do they need them. But the irony is, are people in the pews willing to trust lower leaders? I think one of the reasons that bishops are overworked is because the members overwork them. Either not realizing how much they can do themselves, or not thinking anyone else can help them except the bishop. And one bishopric I had, I was in, when the bishop told the members of the, well, he talked to us in, in bishopric meeting and said, Brother Halverson, I want you to handle all of the marriage and family counseling in the ward. And second counselor, I want you to handle all of the welfare issues and, and uh, financial, economic concerns that people might have. And I'll deal with all of the moral issues and repentance and so on, obviously. Uh, and I remember we were talking about it in a bishopric meeting, and both me and the other counselor were like, sounds good. Uh, those played to our own strengths individually, uh, but we said, Bishop, can you let the rest of the ward know? Uh, can, can it come from you? A, it's going to help reassure them, hey, I'm not trying to, to close my door on anyone, but I am trying to remain sustainable. I'm trying to do things for you and not to you. I'm trying to bring my counselors up to speed. I know at least Halverson could use some extra practice. Uh, so would you trust him with that? Would you trust my counselors to do what they are called to do? And, and that was an interesting thing. Can we trust elders quorum presidencies and Relief Society presidencies to come to our aid? Because that's sustainable service. That's something we need to be moving toward. And then get the help we need and then let them depart. Thank you, Bishop. Thank you, Relief Society President. Thank you, Elders Quorum Counselor. Thank you, best of all, Ministering Sister or Ministering Brother. I, I feel empowered. I think I can do this now. Connecting with you helped me connect with Christ and I've got a good hold Stay, don't go too far away in case I need help again, but I think I've got this, so I will let you depart. Surely, so they can go help somebody else. Such a beautiful thing. I, again, sorry if I belabored the point, but I love Exodus 18. We need to get better at that. Now, Exodus 19 begins in the third month. When the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. Now, can you picture this? A bunch of tents facing the mountain where God will speak to his prophet and the prophet will speak to them. Sounding familiar from a Book of Mormon story? When King Benjamin builds his tower, his little mini Mount Sinai, and the camp of Israel, those Nephites, come and pitch their tents facing the temple, the mount of God, facing their prophet, God's mouthpiece, ready to learn from the Lord. In verse 3, Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain. This story is coming full circle. If you remember back in Exodus 3, when Moses was at the mountain, at the burning bush, and God said to him, Certainly I will be with thee on this mission impossible. And this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee. When thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt, check, ye shall serve God upon this mountain, check, 
I love this. Moses, welcome back. So good to see you again. It's a lot like the angel who appears to to Alma to cry repentance and then later reappears to Alma saying, good job repenting. I haven't seen you in a while and you've made some incredible progress since then. Keep it up, my friend. Well, here this... It's not just going to be a burning bush this time. It's going to be a burning mountain with smoke and fire and lightning and thunder and, and cloud and quaking and everything else. Oh, it's coming full circle, but it's coming into greater crescendo. And you brought all Israel with you. I, not to say I told you so, but I, I did tell you. I did promise you that. And it's happening. Verse 3, we see what God said to Moses. Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, And tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. You see how personal all those pronouns are? We saw all those in 18. Moses got it. Jethro got it. It wasn't about us. It was always about God. And here God himself is saying similarly, I did all of this. And I did it for you because you're mine. I love you. I brought you unto myself. And with that personal connection, that relationship driving all of this, God says in verse 5 and 6, one of the key passages for Israel, ancient and modern. Now, therefore, after all I've done to bring you home to me, if ye will obey my voice indeed, there's commandment keeping, and keep my covenant at staying within this relationship, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me, above all people, for all the earth is mine, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. You see, Israel, we're starting over here. We are wiping clean the old Egyptian slate. And since you're no longer what you used to be, You can be anything from here. So what identity would you choose for yourself? I've got some suggestions. You're mine. You you are my peculiar treasure. Now we talk about being a peculiar people and we think of peculiar as in weird. And yes, sometimes we live up to that, sadly. Or or gratefully, right? The way the world is going, I'd rather be weird. Uh, Countercultural. But peculiar in this case doesn't mean strange. It means it's possessive. God claims it as his own. It's peculiar to him. So my peculiar people, that's my people, or my peculiar treasure, you're my treasured possession. You're special. You're my own. You belong to me. In the book of Malachi, it uses this phrase, when I make up my jewels, that's the same word here. Segula is the word in Hebrew. God's chosen possession, his treasured people. Those are my jewels. And will we be his? Are we okay to accept that title? Now, that seems exclusivistic, though, doesn't it? Uh, Peculiar treasure above all people? Those are mine. That's my chosen people. And we live in a day that isn't big on exclusivity. We live in a day that's much bigger on inclusivity, and that's a good thing. Now, I do fear that we've overcorrected, and our inclusivity is such that we don't have anything to share with one another. Uh, We have kind of 
mushed into some middle ground where, well, I don't want to, we, we're not allowed to be different. Uh, we, despite the world's glorification of diversity, uh, but no, we just, who am I to say anything or give anything to you? Because if, if I'm trying to offer you something, is that oh, paternalistic? Is that, this, this is a post-colonial world, come on. Well, that's where the second verse comes in handy. Well, why do I want a peculiar treasure? Why am I choosing a people above everyone else? Especially if I'm a God that no, has no, is no respecter of persons. If I love all equally. Well, that's where a kingdom of priests and a holy nation comes in. Because if you're a kingdom of priests, what do priests and priestesses do? They serve others. They do not serve themselves. This is the Abrahamic covenant all over again, renewed upon Moses and the entire house of Israel. Abraham, in thee and in thy seed, that's the exclusivity side of the contrary. That's the peculiar treasure. Shall all the families of the earth be blessed? That's the inclusivity side of the contrary. That's the kingdom of priests. If you collectively can become an holy nation, and that's done by obeying my voice and keeping my covenant, I'm trying to cut you off from outside influences so you can end up being an influence on the outside. I'm trying to make you different so you can make a difference. So please obey. Keep taking steps up Sinai. And if you'll stay within the confines of covenant, then nothing can confine you as far as the way you can bless the world at large. I love Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Those are our marching orders. More than what we do, though, it's who we, are, who we are, who God intends us to be. So choose. Choose to obey me. Choose to keep my covenant. In other words, marriage, family. Take on the family business and, and be a part of it. In verse 7, Moses came and called for the elders of the people. We're going to start there. I'm, I'm delegating already. See this? Lower, lower leaders. Come here, elders. And laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. And now that it's being spread through these rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds and fifties and tens and so on, verse 8, the collective house of Israel can respond. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. You see how the delegation is working and how the, the middlemen is going down and then coming back up. And Moses has spoken to God, to, for God, to the elders of Israel. They've spoken to the people. The people respond. Moses takes it back to God. Amazing. And I love the, the people's response. We'll do it. We, that's who we want to be on our best days. When we've had manna to eat and water to drink and we aren't murmuring. Sorry, Moses. On those good days, that's exactly who I, I intend to become. A holy nation, a kingdom of priests. Actually, kingdoms. Isn't that kings? And queens? Oh, but of priests. Oh, and priestesses? Kings and queens, priests and priestesses, becoming that here at the mountain of the Lord. Hmm. I want that. I want to become that, not because of what it will mean alone for me, but because of what I can become for everyone else. God's peculiar treasure, yeah, so I can bless the world. All that he says will do. That's a, that's a key word there. 
not some, not most, not occasionally. I'll do everything. So in verse 9, the Lord says to Moses, Lo, I come unto thee in a thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with thee, and believe thee forever. And Moses told the words of the people unto the Lord. Now, can we hear the voice of God behind the words of our prophets? Because I love what the Lord is saying to Moses there. I'll come down in this thick cloud, veiled, if the people are unprepared for my presence. But they'll hear my voice. They'll know that I speak to you. It's like the... Moses, I know this is a tough go, right? Uh, Bringing all of Israel out of Egypt is a tough one. And you'll struggle with them even more a little later on. Prepare yourself for the next, next couple of weeks. But... I want the people to know that I've got your back, that I called you, and whom I call, I qualify. And so invite them to come and listen. In verse 10, the Lord said unto Moses, Go unto the people, and three things, sanctify them today and tomorrow. Second, let them wash their clothes. And third, be ready against the third day. For the third day the Lord will come down in the sight of all the people upon Mount Sinai. Can we do that? Can we become clean? Do you remember Jacob was asking that of his family when they were going back to the site of Jacob's ladder? Bethel, the house of God. Well, Sinai is the same equivalent. And here you have the new Jacob, a.k.a. Moses, saying to his family, a.k.a. Israel, wash yourself Put away false gods. That was Jacob's advice. Same thing here. Sanctify yourself. Wash even your outer clothing. Inside and outside come clean. Clean hands, pure heart. And be ready. We've talked about the importance of temple worthiness. But do we talk enough about temple readiness? I might be clean, but I might be unprepared. Clean, clean but clueless. That probably describes most of us when we went to the temple for the first time. Uh, and we can help a little bit more so that people aren't clueless. Let's explain some ways to be ready for this experience, not just being worthy for the experience. And if you are, then you will see. You see, I'll come down in the sight of the people. Last verse was, they'll hear me as I speak to you. Here they will see something. And if you want to graduate from from sound to sight, that's how you do it. It's through sanctification. That's what the Lord says in section 88 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Therefore, sanctify yourselves, same word there, that your minds become single to God. And the days will come that you shall see him, for he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time and in his own way and according to his own will. So the promise given through Moses there still holds today. For we peculiar people. In verse 12, thou shalt set bounds unto the people round about, saying, take heed to yourselves that ye go not up into the mount or touch the border of it. Whosoever toucheth the mount shall be surely put to death. Now that seems a little strict, Uh, but we wanted to hear God. We wanted to see him. It's like those poor uh, security guards that are posted at football or basketball games when the underdog is about to pull off the ultimate upset. And there, there, there they are, ready to be 
bowled over as the crowd empties out onto the court or the field. Uh, yeah, don't, don't come down. Yeah, good luck enforcing that one. Never works. Well, here, set bounds and don't cross them, Israel. In fact, don't even touch the border of the mountain. Draw the line and then take a few steps back, okay? Because if you touch it, you will die. Now, this seems a little over the top, doesn't it? And yet, what is God about to give them? Law. Commandments. So heaven forbid, forbid he give us some commandments on the way to giving us actual commandments. Okay? This one actually is a pretty small one, but with a huge consequence. And I'm using that on purpose. You see, I've had students over the years say, why is God so strict in the Old Testament? In fact, some even go, why, why is he so mean or why is he so harsh? Well, I hope you've been seeing his mercy throughout it all. And we'll keep looking for it everywhere we can. And it's everywhere. But in answer to that question, I'll often say to them, oh, that's right. You don't have kids yet. And they go, what? Go, trust me. The Old Testament made so much more sense to me once I had children of my own. Now, that doesn't mean I'm harsh to my children. But it does mean that I am crystal clear, or I tried to be, crystal clear in my instructions, immediate in the consequences when they do something wrong. Now, that doesn't mean I'm going to kill them for touching the border of the mount, okay? These are adults, but spiritually they're children. And so they're going to need clear limits, structure in their lives, clear consequence that ideally is inherently connected to the crime. So that, it's, so that it makes total sense to them. This is like raising puppies, for lack of a better analogy, that they thrive on repetition and order and clear punishments and rewards, especially the rewards, okay? Uh, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to reduce our children to the level of puppies, okay? Uh, but some training takes place. I actually had a fascinating conversation with a new friend of mine with some amazing insights into this whole concept of proving contraries and things that he'd heard me talk about. And it's like, oh, I want to share some things back. And we were learning from each other. It was awesome. And he has three foster children. And they came from really, really hard situations with drug abuse among their birth parents and absolute neglect and major mental illness and he and his wife are a pair of saints that said, we can handle all that and we can help them. And so they are. And, and he said, it's interesting raising foster kids that were already raised in the wrong way elsewhere and trying to undo that damage to help them unlearn so that they can then relearn. That's the approach. That's the stages of faith, by the way. Creation, fall, atonement. There's construction, deconstruction, reconstruction, or there's learn, unlearn, relearn. We all need to go through it to a degree, but especially his kids. And as he was describing some of the things he and his wife have done, it's awesome. It's changing the lives of their children for the better. And as we were laughing about this uh, analogy, I said, oh, that's genius. I've always used children as an example of taking you know, Israel out of Egypt and then trying to take Egypt out of Israel from then on out. And like I said, I've told my students that it'll make more sense when you have kids. But I said to this new friend, Man, foster kids is an even better example because they've already been raised in a certain way. Israel 
were fought, they were foster kids in Egypt with false gods and false senses of self. They were slaves. And how would they view themselves? No wonder they need to be told, you're a peculiar treasure. You mean everything to me. You're my jewels. You're not the filth beneath someone, some Egyptian taskmaster's feet. You can become a kingdom, not be crushed under some other kingdom's thumb. You are priests and priestesses, not slaves. So come to see yourself the way I see you. But that's going to take a lot of time and a lot of remaking. It's going to take a lot of discipline. And until it becomes self-discipline, it will have to be outside discipline. So here's the line. You must not cross it. If you touch the line, you will die. I'm going to be as clear as I possibly can be. Because the, the real instructions that are coming up in one more chapter, those do have eternal consequences. You thought this was bad with life and death? Well, this is eternal life and death. So I'm just getting you warmed up. Okay. Now, verse 13, he explains it further. There shall not an hand touch it, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether it be beast or man, it shall not live. When the trumpet soundeth long, they shall come up to the mount. Now that clarif 13 clarifies 12. Now on the one hand, so not even a hand, don't touch it. It actually sounds like Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Did God really say not to eat the fruit? Yeah, he said that. In fact, he said, don't even touch the fruit. Hmm. Yeah, I guess I'll never eat it if I never touch it. Ah, he doesn't want me on the mountain unprepared, unworthy or unready. So here's the line. Don't even touch the line. Because once you touch it, it's really easy to go past it. Okay. Gotcha. That's helpful. Not, not beast or man? Well, the beast isn't even going to know. Oh, okay. So then you're responsible for those beasts. You need to take care of each other. And anyone who doesn't know about the rule, make sure they do. Steer them in a better direction. That also says something about accountability. Because would a beast be accountable to this rule? No, because they don't understand it. But there are still consequences that come, whether you know about it or not. So we need to help each other out here. This, for now, is less about moral choice We'll see that in chapter 20. This is more about just choice in general. It's less about things that are inherently evil and more about simply learning to follow instructions. I've heard that in the military with boot camp and things, there are so many rules to follow, even down to making your bed in the morning to the point that the quarter bounces off the blanket, right? Those, those stereotypical stories. Well, what's up with that? Is making my bed really going to save my life in the war? Actually, maybe. I've seen books written about from ex-military men saying it all starts with making your bed in the morning. Not that that does anything in and of itself, but it does create discipline, a sense of accomplishment, doing something and doing it well and doing it right the very first thing out of bed. It gives you momentum for the rest of the day. And if you can do that and, and do it really, really right, that's the skill set. It's not the specific skill set I'm after. It's the set of attributes I'm trying to develop. And so let's work on this. 
Uh, this is like the old marshmallow test from Stanford University years ago. Elder, Bed, uh, sorry, Elder Uchtdorf used this in a conference talk. That just don't, don't eat the marshmallow. But there's nothing wrong with eating marshmallows. Well, fine. But I'm just telling you not to. And I will give you a reward if you can keep this rule. Or if you just eat it, that's kind of its own inherent punishment because you don't get another marshmallow later. Okay? Carrot sticks, take your, take your pick. And it's only for a certain amount of time. So eventually, this particular rule will cease to be in effect. And that's what happened in 13 also. It's just until the trumpet sounds. Once the trumpet, I'm just trying to train your, it's, it's short term, train your obedience, work on flexing that muscle and pushing back against the natural man. Don't cross just this line, although there's nothing inherently evil about it. Okay, don't even let your animals do it. Be responsible for each other and keep the rule. Okay, this is just like working with a little kid. Can you sit still for 30 seconds is all? And then I'll give you a treat. And then we'll work towards a minute. And then we'll work to, you, you might actually eventually be able to sit still in sacrament meeting. It'll be amazing for all of us. This is a little puppy, sit, stay. What was it, stay? I don't, you're not going to stay there forever, but I'm trying to train you. Okay? And God's trying to train us all. Verse 14. Moses went down from the mount unto the people and sanctified the people, as asked, and they washed their clothes, as asked. And he said unto the people, be ready against the third day. Come not at your wives. Now that last one's an interesting one. Because if you're married, this is sexual relationships that he's talking about, and to avoid them for the next three days as we're trying to get temple ready. Now intimacy within the bonds of marriage is not a matter of worthiness or unworthiness. So that's not what he's talking about here. Again, we're not talking about things that are inherently wrong, Otherwise, beasts can do anything because they haven't been taught any better. But here, I'm again seeking self-discipline. I'm asking for readiness and not just worthiness. I'm wanting to see if you can follow instructions. So let's stick with that. That's going to be part of your readiness to, to come to the mountain. Verse 16, it came to pass on the third day in the morning that there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud upon the mount and the voice of the trumpet exceeding loud so that all the people that was in the camp trembled. This is the God of the Exodus, after all. This is the God of the ten plagues, the God of the parting of the waters, the God of pillar of fire, cloud of smoke, the God of shaking to make sure that things are well built and will stand the test of time. In verse 17, Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. And they stood at the nether part of the mount. You picture the prophet coaxing them forward. You can do this. You have been sanctified. You've been washed. You are ready as well as worthy. So come. You heard the, you heard the, the trumpet blast. You can have your second marshmallow. You've done incredibly well. So come. Now in section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we need to take a quick field trip to see an added detail about what's happening here. The Lord's been talking about the Melchizedek Priesthood and its saving ordinances through which we can come to know God and receive the powers of godliness. He says this in verse 21. For without the ordinances thereof, 
of the Melchizedek priesthood, that is, and the authority of the priesthood, then the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh. For without this, without these ordinances, without this authority, no man can see the face of God, even the Father, and live. Now this, what's this? Everything we just studied. Now this Moses plainly taught to the children of Israel in the wilderness and sought diligently to sanctify his people that they might behold the face of God. That's what he's been doing. Sanctifying them, telling them to wash, to be ready, to be worthy. He's teaching, according to section 84, he's teaching that this is how you access the powers of godliness. It's going to be through the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood. This is what God is hoping to give to us. We'll see more of this next week. Are the people ready? Well, we'll see how that plays out. But that is the goal. And Moses is seeking diligently to accomplish it. In verse 18, Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire and the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace and the whole mount quaked greatly. There's fire to purify, smoke to veil our eyes and therefore require our faith. The quaking, like I said, to reduce to rubble things that have not truly been made according to the standards of God. And then in 19, when the voice of the trumpet sounded long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice. Can you picture the intensity of this moment? The clarion call, the fire and smoke and quaking and thunder and lightning and God speaking to Moses. Verse 20, the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mount. And the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mount and Moses went up. See, God is coming down. Moses is going up. We'll see more of this as the, the tabernacle is laid out in these different areas of the outer court or the holy place or the holy of holies to see the base of the mountain, the, the, the valley before it, or the bottom part of the mountain, or God who's waiting for us to reach him at the top. There is a telestial, terrestrial, celestial kind of differentiation here. But the fact God is willing to come down, there's condescension. And no wonder he asks so many of his prophets to ascend the mountain to be with him. That's Moses here, but it was Enoch back in Moses 6 and 7. It's Nephi in 1 Nephi. It's the brother of Jared in the book of Ether. It's Peter, James, and John with Jesus at the Mount of Transfiguration. It's us every time we ascend the mountain of the Lord when we go to the temple. It's our own Bethel, right? It's our Garden of Eden climbing back up to access the Tree of Life. In verse 21, the Lord said unto Moses, go down. What? I just got here. I, got, I took all this time to climb up. I know. But now go down and charge the people, lest they break through unto the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. So there's another warning. This needs to be based on covenant, not mere curiosity. Of what's happening in there? I just want to peek. I want to gaze. Oh, no, there's sanctify yourself so that your eye is single to my glory, not just to satisfy some kind of human curiosity. 
In verse 22, let the priests also, which come near to the Lord, sanctify themselves, lest the Lord break forth upon them. Break out in anger against them is how it's translated elsewhere. To break forth, that can also mean to burst out. It's the same word that's used in childbirth. And the child is, is breaching, is, is breaking forth out of the womb. And to think of God breaking forth, to come through, to part the veil, to reach out to us and draw us in to him. That's what he hopes will happen here. But we have to be ready for it. We have to be pure, sanctified, even the priests. In verse 23, Moses says unto the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for thou chargest us, saying, Set bounds upon the mount and sanctify it. I laugh at this one because it's Moses kind of pushing back gently against the Lord because the Lord says, okay, you came up, awesome, go back down and remind the people not to touch them out, not to come out, not to cross the line. Remember, we're trying to teach them how to color within the lines. We're teaching them to line up in order. We are developing self-discipline among them. And and Moses here is like, well, we don't need to because they can't. I don't have to go down and tell them because I already did. The first time you told me to tell them, I did and we're good to go. So now that I'm up here, I'm just ready to receive all the law. Then the Lord's like, "Uh, you don't know little kids or foster children like I do. Go back down and remind them. Okay, Uh, They will need constant reinforcement that these really are the rules that need to be followed. So get used to repeating yourself. Okay. Then finally, verse 24 and 5, the Lord said unto him, Away, get thee down. This is your chance to obey too. Okay, And thou shalt come up, thou and Aaron with thee, bring your brother next time, but let not the priests and the people break through to come up unto the Lord, lest he break forth upon them. I'm repeating myself, I know, but you need it too, Moses. So Moses went down unto the people and spake unto them. So he did as commanded. And went down to bring another one up. Again, condescension followed by con ascension. I actually went through this chapter a second time uh, after I'd been studying this and just because I was so struck with the, the movement of Moses and the up and the down and I go, okay, now go back down. Okay, come back up and talk. Okay, go back and remind him. Do I have to? I'm already up here. Yes. And okay, come back, bring Aaron. And if I'm reading this right, Moses went up in three, down in seven, up in eight, down in 14, up in 20, down in 25. Whew, he's getting his workout. Those steps haven't yet been carved by the monks, but maybe there was some, a well-defined trail by the time Moses had gone up and down so many times. But welcome to the life of a prophet. I picture their meetings in the Salt Lake Temple every Thursday, climbing up to be with God, and then climbing back down to go somewhere in the world to bless God's children. There's a, there's a Moses, there's an Aaron, there's a, a President Nelson or a President Oaks. Uh, it's amazing to see what they are trying to accomplish in connecting heaven with earth by blazing the trail and by being for us to Godward. Now with 19 behind us, 20 then prepares us to receive the law. I got used to this border I'm not supposed to cross or even touch. I didn't even get close to it. Uh, thanks for the reminder. I was getting a little tempted to peek, but uh, I'm, I'm back here. I kept my animals, kept each other, heard the trumpet. Uh, is it, are we ready to move? 
Okay, good. You're learning some self-discipline. Now let's have some lines that are not just being drawn in the sand, but are being engraved in the stone. Things that are far more than just physical life or death at the base of the mountain, but will bring you spiritual life or death at its top. The Ten Commandments, synonymous with Exodus chapter 20, these are things we have to learn to master. Not only are they found in the Old Testament, but Jesus refers to many of them in the New and even raises the bar on them. They are repeated in the Book of Mormon by Abinadi. They're repeated by the Lord in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 42 and 59. So these are serious. It's hard to find a standard work that doesn't reiterate the Ten Commandments in some shape or form. In some ways, you've, been, you've graduated from the game of Simon Says down below, and now you're ready for the Word of the Lord that reflect essential matters of right and wrong. And don't forget what Jesus himself said when the lawyer asked, which of all those commandments is most important? Which of the ten? Is that what he's wondering? Oh, it doesn't matter how many are on your list. I can boil it down to two. Love God and love neighbor. But then he says this, for on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The law is what we're seeing from Moses. The prophets is what we'll see pretty much everywhere else in the Old Testament. But the fact you can boil it all down to those two, let's work on that as we study the Ten Commandments now. Which category would we place them under? The vertical or the horizontal dimension? Vertical, connecting with God, loving Him. Horizontal, the loving neighbor as self. Now, I remember years ago teaching seminary and learning this interesting Oh, mnemonic device to keep the Ten Commandments in mind and to keep them in order. Somebody, an older teacher, had said, oh yeah, it's easy. Gib Guy and Gabe always went to church and their parents were so proud of them that they built them a castle by the sea. And I go, wait, what, did, what, did, what are you talking about? Oh, that's the Ten Commandments in order. Huh? Yeah, three brothers. Gib, well, it's strange names. Gib, Guy, and Gabe. Gib is G-B, that stands for no gods before me. Guy is G-I, that stands for graven images, none of those either. Gave is G-V, so that's God's name in vain. Gib, Guy, and Gave always went to church. Oh, that's keeping the Sabbath day holy. And their parents, theirs honor your father and your mother, were so proud that they built them a K-A-S-L by the sea, a castle by the sea. Forgive the spelling. K is don't kill, A is don't commit adultery, S is don't steal, L is don't lie, or as is said in Exodus, don't bear false witness, and C is don't covet. Kind of helpful, right? So again, Gib, Guy, and Gabe always went to church, and their parents were so proud that they built them a castle by the sea. There are the Ten Commandments. That is the law. And together with all the prophets, they boiled down to loving God and loving neighbor. So let's see how God unfolds them in Exodus chapter 20. Verse 1, God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now remember that, because that is the, the preface to the Ten Commandments. So before he gives them the law, he wants to introduce them to the Lord and remind them of who he is and where they would be without him. Now, this is not the divine equivalent of, I brought you into the world and I can take you out of it, or as long as I, you're living under my roof, you have to follow my commandments, uh, my rules. That's what parents say in mortality. It's not quite that way. 
But God is reminding them, if you ever wonder about the whys behind all these commandments, please remember the who that ultimately stands behind them. If you'll remember that I'm the Lord your God and that without me you would still be in Egypt, either way you're going to be following rules. You want the world's or the Lord's? Do you want to be doing what Egypt, that Egypt is demanding of you? Or do you want to develop the righteous reflexes, the wax on, wax off, right, that come through obedience to the commandments of God? Always keep that identity behind all of these requirements of obedience. In fact, Alma 12, verse 32, God gave unto them commandments after having made known unto them the plan of redemption. That's such an important verse. You got to know the context for these commands and why they're so important. So let's explain the plan. And then in the context of the plan, here's why commandments are so important. And that seems to be what God is doing here. The plan is me and bringing you out of Egypt to get you to your promised land. It was creation. It's fall. Now it's atonement. And this is where all these commandments fit in. So here they are. Number one, verse three, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Short, sweet, simple, straightforward. But man, it's hard to live in a world that seems to be presenting us with gods all around us. Other things that will ask us for sacrifice and allegiance. And not just bad things, good things too. But things that might distract or dilute our discipleship. Things that will keep us from the things that matter most. And the blessings that only the true and living God can give us. Remember what we learned from Jethro. The God of Israel can do better than any other God out there, even in the things wherewith they boast themselves. And so no other gods, in some ways he's saying no lesser gods, because that's all it would ever be. Don't turn to them and do what they ask just because of what they can give you. I can give you something so much better. I can make you into someone so much better. So please keep everything else in proper perspective. If it's a bad false god, then eliminate it entirely. If it's a good false god, still realize it's false and keep it as a distant second at best, far behind your allegiance to the Lord your God. This is, seek ye first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. This is, before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, you shall obtain those other things if you seek them. And you'll seek them for the right purposes. I love the statement from William Law, 18th century Anglican priest. Elder Maxwell has quoted him and made that statement more famous in the church, but originally from William Law. If you have not chosen the kingdom of God first, it will in the end make no difference what you have chosen instead. So that first commandment is first for good reason. Make sure you keep God first and foremost in every aspect of your life. Everything else then will fall into proper place or fall off your list entirely. I think it was Elder Hunter, Howard W. Hunter, that taught that. In verse 4, our second commandment, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Part of me wants to say, why would I grave an image when I've already been graven after the image and likeness of God himself? 
anything else is a cheap imitation of the true and living God. I am his son. You are his daughter or son. To understand that, his image engraven in our countenance, I don't need any lesser image. I certainly don't want to pay homage to some lesser image that's out there. No other gods? Well, I certainly don't need a graven image. In fact, I don't need a visible thing to remind me of the invisible God. I will place faith in him. Because honestly, anything visible would probably end up taking away from the reality of the invisible God. Have you ever seen a movie that you've read the book for and you were disappointed because the movie's depiction just couldn't do justice to what you had created in your own mind and heart? In some ways, the problem with a graven image is it's too, well, set in stone, perhaps literally. It's a painting that is framed and therefore has its limits. When you try to define God, F-I-N is the word for finish, end, and define is to establish some kind of end. This is what it is, and it's not anything beyond it. This was it, is what it is because that is what it isn't. Well, be careful about trying to define God and drawing limits to the Lord to the point of, well, he can probably do this, but he can't do anything beyond that. Oh, careful. I love the, the phrase in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple where Joseph speaks of God's infinity of fullness. You understand why you shouldn't paint the picture? Because it can't be framed. It certainly can't fit on any earthly canvas. Now, that doesn't mean that we can't oh, paint pictures and to, to see the, the beautiful works of art that have been created throughout time to bear witness of God. Those can be moving. But if they take the place of the God that so far outshines them, then we've got a middleman that's blocking our view instead of pointing us to Godward. It's an interesting commandment. In verse 5, he explains it further. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Perhaps that's the bigger concern. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Now, those are stark comparisons. Hate me? Versus love me? Wow, I, I, I'm not trying to go to those extremes. Well, you kind of end up at one extreme or the other. Remember the Lord's words in the Sermon on the Mount that no man can serve two masters? Well, why? Because you'll either hate the one and love the other, those same extreme verbs, or you'll hold to the one and despise the other. You see, life tends to nudge you toward the extremes of of identification and, and pure, undiluted allegiance to one side or the other. It's hard to strike middle ground and be a true independent or reach across both sides of any aisle. And yet here, be careful about allowing idols, graven images, false gods into your life because they're not going to be satisfied with joint custody. This really is a custody battle between God and the devil, between God and mammon, uh, Zion and Egypt. And here we are being pulled between the poles. So hate one, love the other. You're going to end up making those kinds of decisions. And God is jealous. 
in a good way. Not jealous in a self-serving way, but jealous in the thought of why wouldn't you stay on my side because I'm the only one that can help you cross the ultimate finish line. Satan's equally jealous, but his is a selfish jealousy. It is about him because he gives nothing to us, whereas the Lord wants to give us all that he hath. So be aware of that kind of modern day idolatry that you and I might fall into. It may not be an Egyptian or Canaanite pantheon we're tempted to, to carve into stone. But there are false gods and graven images that we tend to idolize in our day too. I love how Brigham Young said it. I would as soon see a man worshiping a little god made of brass or of wood as to see him worshiping his property. We, from a modern perspective, we almost laugh at the thought of, oh, those uncivilized barbarians that would bow to some carved image. Well, are we that much better or that much different when we seem to be offering our allegiance to lesser things all the time? In verse 7, we see our next commandment, the third. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. So many ways to define that kind of vanity. We see it in section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants where the name of the priesthood is replaced for the Melchizedek priesthood. What we would have said in, in the place of Melchizedek is the name of deity. And yet to avoid the too frequent repetition of the name of deity, that's why we call it Melchizedek priesthood either. Now, I don't think I've ever used the name of Melchizedek priesthood flippantly, which means I don't think I would use the name of God flippantly if I stuck to the original title of the priesthood. But that says something. If the Lord is concerned about us using the name of God even reverently, but too frequently, then imagine how serious he must feel about taking his name in vain. And sadly, for some people, that is one of the more common words in their vocabulary. They're just never referring to God when they, when they utter his name. And that's vanity. That's, why would you do that? It's done in vain. It means nothing. And there, it suggests that God means nothing to you. No wonder that you cannot be held guiltless if that's the case. There's another way to take that, and that's to take the name of God upon you in vain. Think about priesthood ordinances. Think about church membership. And do we sometimes take the name of God upon ourselves for no reason? Oh, just one more day at church and I get, oh, the bread just got passed and I'm supposed to take it because everyone else does. I haven't really been thinking much about my covenants or Christ. But, okay, oh, oh, well, let me take the name of God. Careful, are we doing it in vain? Or along those lines, but switching the meaning of vanity, it's not just doing it for no reason, but doing it for a selfish reason. Vanity in that the Ecclesiastes says, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It doesn't mean everyone's staring in a mirror. It's just, it's meaningless. And sometimes we take the, the name of God in a meaningless way. But sometimes we do it in a vain way. That's when the mirror does come in. That's when we're praying to be heard of man. That's when we're disfiguring our faces while we fast. That's when we're 
doing things for others when we're really doing things for ourselves. And that's taking the name of God in a vainglorious kind of way. More about us than about him. And that's not guiltless either. In verse 8, 9, 10, we see a larger explanation for the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. Now with the end there, we see that it's not just about us. Kind of like that line at the bottom of Sinai, make sure your beasts don't even cross it. Same thing here. The Sabbath isn't just about a rule for you, my people. It's, in fact, less a rule and more a blessing. And it's a blessing intended for everyone. A day of rest? A day to rest from your labors? Think about it, former slaves. What Does a day of rest sound like a restriction to you? Or does it sound like the ultimate release and relief? from a world that never seems to give you any freedom. Everyone deserves that. Every manservant, every maidservant, every beast. Let people and things, we'll see later, even the earth itself, let it rest. I hope that allows us to change our perspective on the Sabbath. From a day of don'ts to a day of do's, but do's that bring us to God, uh, that free us from the wicked world and all of its pressures. Let the world share in that gift. And so it's not just about me not being able to work, it's me not having to work and me not making anyone else work either for my behalf. I do want to share in that gift. And that does help me determine what I will or will not do on the Sabbath day. Not just how it affects me, but how it affects other people. Once we understand that rest is a spiritual necessity, even if it's not a physical necessity. Did God get tired after six days of creation, physically speaking? No. But to carve out space, to just contemplate all he'd done the six days before, or as we see again from section 84, right on the heels of that Moses trying diligently to sanctify his people, He talks about entering into the rest of the Lord, and then he defines it, which rest is the fullness of God's glory. That should change the way we approach the Sabbath. Wow, that day of rest. Some have joked, it's like, wow, I'm busier on Sundays than I am the rest of the week. You you who are in certain callings in the church, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, And so some have said, day of rest, Uh uh-uh. It's like during the week I do everything I can, and then on Sunday I have to do all the rest. There might be some truth. He even said it. You're going to rest from thy work. That doesn't mean you're resting from mine. But what is that work? Oh, it's my work and my glory, which means my rest, which includes my work, is a way to access the fullness of my glory. And it is amazing how those kinds of days, in many ways, rejuvenate us in ways that taking a mere nap never could. But don't forget the way the Lord set up that verse. He didn't start with, keep the Sabbath day holy. He started with, remember. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Have there been any Sabbath days in your life worth remembering? Or the memory of which just makes you want to celebrate another Sabbath just like that one? 
a day that truly got you into the fullness of God's glory, if you can remember those, then every Sabbath becomes a goal to get back to that place on Sinai where you are encompassed about by the glory of God. Now, remembering just might be the important thing we can do on the Sabbath in order to help us keep it holy. Or better said, so that it can keep us holy, since that's its real design. And I would suggest there are three things that we need to be remembering on the Sabbath. And this is the way God himself set it up. The first instance of enjoining the Sabbath upon his children was creation. Seven, six days I labored, created heaven and earth. Seventh day I rested and sanctified this space so that you'd have time to rest as well. That's part of becoming very good in God. So what do we remember on the Sabbath? We remember the creation. Second step is here. Now that you've been freed from Egyptian bondage and you're about to come into your promised land, remember this kind of an experience. And keeping the Sabbath day holy will come naturally to you because you can finally rest from Egyptian labor. You're free from bondage. Your Sabbath day is a day of deliverance. Remember that. And, and you can feel the freedom of being delivered from work and worry and care. It's a glorious day. The third, we have to wait for the New Testament. When the Lord takes a Sabbath day of rest and glorious work in the spirit world, that's his Saturday, and then on Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, bursts forth with newness of life out of that empty tomb. And that became the Sabbath for Christians from that day forward. We call it the Lord's Day, and it does belong to him. He made it his own, that's for sure. And then he gave it to all of us as a time to be able to remember him and to remember the atonement that he had just performed, the at-one-ment he had just made possible. So here's the thing. I've had students over the years ask, I remember this one girl particularly in Tennessee, just joined the church, amazing new convert, full of desire, and just wanted to do what was right. She was awesome. And one day she asked me about certain Sabbath day activities and asked if any of those were against the Sabbath. And she had like this list. And I'm not big on lists. I'm big on principles, right? Yeah, teach them and then let them govern themselves. And so as she was asking about these things, like, does this break the Sabbath? Does that break the Sabbath? Does that break the Sabbath? I said, I love the way you're asking the question. Does it break the Sabbath? What does it mean when something's broken? And she's like, what, what do you mean? No, no, seriously. What is it when something's broken? How does that, what are we saying there? And she said, well, it doesn't work. It doesn't work properly. Ah, okay, then what does it mean to break the Sabbath? I think too often we picture the Sabbath as some kind of this thing, this object. I always used to joke that I had a friend in, in high school, and his, I was over at his house all the time. His, I called his parents mom and dad, still do to this day. And they had this living room that with, with white carpet, I'd never seen anyone actually enter. You could still see the tracks from the, the vacuum from months before. I used to joke that I said, dude, you could get anything you wanted from your parents. Just walk into that room or like hold out a pitcher of grape juice over it and go, ah, it's slipping. Give me the car keys. I mean, you can hold your parents ransom with that room. And I picture sometimes that's my mental image of how some people picture the Sabbath. It's this room of pure white uh, non-occupancy. You're not allowed to go in or do anything because it will end up defiling it. It will break the Sabbath. 
as if the Sabbath were such a fragile thing. You see Jesus constantly in the New Testament popping Pharisaic bubbles about the Sabbath. As he says, come on guys, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a time to be lived in and to do the, the Lord's work in and to heal the sick and raise the dead and bring life into what you've turned into dead space. No wonder our children can't stand the Sabbath. All these things I'm not allowed to do. Instead of, ah, oh, this is time to remember. It was designed, based on what we've been seeing, of when the Lord confirms the importance of the Sabbath. It's a day designed to accomplish three things. Number one, to create us. To move us from without form and void to something God himself would consider very good. Second, it is a day of deliverance. No longer in bondage. We can go free and stretch our wings, those eagle's wings that the Lord has brought us out on as we're headed towards his promised land. And it is a day of atonement. A day of new life, of rebirth and resurrection. A day where I can come unto God and emerge from the tombs of earthly emptiness to rejoice in newness of life with the Lord. So to my young friend, what does it mean to break the Sabbath? Anything you do or don't do, sins of commission or sins of omission, that keep the Sabbath from working properly. If the way you act on the Sabbath doesn't create you and deliver you and, and bring you back to life, then it was broken. It didn't work as intended. And so if you're wondering about your Sabbath day, then remember that. Remember those three things. God gives a gentle reminder of that in verse 11. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Rested, blessed, hallowed. Hallowed means to make it holy, to purify it, to sanctify it, to set it apart, to dedicate it, to consecrate it. Oh, we got plenty to do on the Sabbath, but it's all things that will make us more like God in beautiful, beautiful ways. With all that behind us, those first four, all of which point us in the vertical direction, loving God with all our heart, might, mind, and strength, no other God to take his place, no graven image to distract from him, wanting to fully live into that identity, take his name upon us with full purpose of heart, no vanity there, and honoring the day that he has given us to honor him and become more like him. After those four, I'm ready to shift to the horizontal plane and try to live into the second great commandment of loving my neighbor. First of all are the neighbors closest to me, namely my own parents, my own family, immediate circle. Verse 12, honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Paul gives us a unique twist on this in the book of Ephesians, where he says, children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And then again, honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. 
that it may be well with thee, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Now, he said a couple of things there. Not only did he say, honor thy father and thy mother, but he said, obey thy parents. But then the caveat, in the Lord. Is there a difference between honoring and obeying? I think so. And sometimes, especially if our parents aren't the type of people that we should be obeying, if obeying your earthly parents is going against disobeying your heavenly parents, then something's got to give. And which set of parents is it better to disobey? That should be an easy answer. But, but I thought I was supposed to honor them. Well, actually, living a, a righteous life is the most honorable thing you could ever do for your parents. It's the greatest source of honor for them. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. Now, even if the parents themselves aren't walking in truth or don't want their children to walk in truth, well, hopefully that's rare. But even in those cases, if I disobey them, I'm actually honoring them, trying to bring honor by the type of person I'm striving to become. I think that's why Paul says, obey your parents in the Lord. If, if they are in the Lord and you are too, then honoring and obeying will be the same. It's just the, the opposite where it, it might not be. But then notice also what Paul focused on. This is the first commandment with promise. Now, there's a promise attached to every commandment, right? Uh, that we receive blessings as they are predicated upon law. And receiving any blessing, it's come, it comes through obedience to the law upon which it is predicated. That's DNC 130. But this one is specifically mentioned in the Ten Commandments. The rest were do it, don't do it, thou shalt, thou shalt not. But this one, here's the promise. Your days can be long upon the land. Hmm, how does that work? Now, some have joked, it's like, well, of course. If you don't obey your parents, you don't honor them, they're going to kill you. Now, I took you into this world, I can take you out of it. Now, hopefully that's not the case, right? But I do think there's something multi-generational here to look at. And how will my days be long upon the land if I honor my parents? Well, imagine my children seeing me do that. In these multi-generational families, remember Jethro, let's stay close, concentric circles. And if my children watch me truly honoring my parents in their old age and visiting them or caring for them, I'm amazed at so many of you who have done that for so long and caring for aged parents and changing where you live or how your life, what your lifestyle is and having them come in and move in with you to, to see my mom's mom move in with my parents for the last little while of her life was an eye-opener for me. I hope, as my parents get older, my children, I hope I'm setting an example to my children of what it looks like to honor parents. Because if they internalize that and then honor me with their service and sacrifice and love when I'm nearing the end of my life, that would prolong my life and prolong the joy I feel in my life. And my days would be long upon the land which the Lord my God has given me. I, I do think that's one aspect of this that sometimes goes unappreciated. I think the same could be said just in terms of family life in general. 
not just honoring parents, because Paul does that too. Yes, honor your parents, but parents, you better honor your children too. Uh, you better reciprocate, okay, and make for good families. And if that's the case, then yes, that tends to longer and more happy life as well. Now, beyond that, we now have the castle by the sea. These five last commandments that they're all thou shalt nots. They're very short, very specific, very strict. Don't do these things. First, thou shalt not kill. Now, life and death are God's territory. And that's not a place where we interfere. That's not a sin we should commit because it's not a place where restitution is even possible. Thou shalt not kill. It's so important to understand the value of life that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes that law and raises it and says, it's not enough not just to kill. Don't even get angry. Let's draw a line, <laughs> safe distance, that if you don't cross this one, you'll never cross that one because that's a make it or break it. In verse 14, the seventh commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that, again, back to the, the intimacy that must exist within the family, and to be true and faithful to those covenants. God is going to use adultery as an analogy throughout much of the rest of the Old Testament in terms of Israel cheating on God in a relationship that was meant to be peculiar and treasured and, and confined just to them. It, it's scary to live in a world that does not take those kinds of covenants seriously at all. And where adultery has become so normalized that people don't tend to bat an eye about it. The Lord bats an eye. In fact, he sheds a tear. And so does any person who has been cheated on by the person that they're most vulnerable to. There must be love and loyalty within marriage. And so thou shalt not commit adultery. There must be stability in your family's life. It's a stability that every child deserves. What did President McKay say? The greatest gift that a father can give to his children is to love their mother. That goes both ways. And to be true to one another is absolutely key. That's one that Jesus also elevated. The law says don't commit adultery. I say don't even look with lust. Don't cross that line. To keep that line absolutely inviolable. In verse 15, we get the eighth commandment. Thou shalt not steal. I mean, these are staccato statutes. Just boom, boom, boom. Don't kill. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. And he's just laser focused, getting these into their hearts, engraving them on their fleshy tables. If you need to memorize a verse, that's a short one. <laughs> a lot of these commandments really are. Don't steal. Well, there's trying to get something for nothing. It goes along with the idleness slash idleness, I-D-L-E and I-D-O-L, we saw so often in the Book of Mormon. If it's worth getting, it's worth working for. It's worth earning. It's worth paying a price. It's worth sacrificing. Stealing, on the other hand, short circuits all of that. It short circuits the law of the harvest. It Create some mentality that there really are shortcuts to your goals. And what did we learn about the Tower of Babel? That, that's not the case. This same friend of mine, talking about his foster children, said one of them was raised in a home that was so neglectful 
that the only way she could provide for her meager needs was by stealing. And so from uh, toddlerhood on, it was like, you need it, you take it, because no one's ever going to provide it for you. And so when they adopted her, that, that was a learning curve. She just assumed that's what everybody did. You want it, you take it, that's it. You can only survive by stealing. And so to try to teach her in a loving way, not just this is why it's so wrong. We don't do it. It's just that's a line we don't cross. No, it was more a matter of love. Like somebody owns that. Somebody loves that thing or somebody paid for that thing and worked hard to be able to acquire it. And taking it from them would be such an unloving thing to do. See, I think too often stealing comes because we focus on the object instead of the owner of that object that we keep out of view. Whereas if I'm loving my neighbor as myself, how could I possibly steal from them? That is such an act of unkindness. As if that person didn't exist. Or at least wasn't real to me. That's something I often feel when people steal or litter or there's so many different aspects of this. Where are other people not real to you? When will they pop into three dimension? Is it only happen when, when someone steals from you? Because you know that you're real. You have to be careful with that. In verse 16, we see the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And as the Lord tells us in a later parable, everyone is our neighbor. And so how are our dealings with all our fellow man and woman? Are we honest in all those dealings? Uh, if not, that'll keep us out of the temple. Are we serious about that level of integrity? As Jesus would say, you shouldn't have to swear by heaven and earth on all these things. Just let your yea be yea and your nay be nay. Why do we need lawyers and writing things in triplicate and have it notarized and I'm going to sue you if you go against this contract? Is my word really not my bond? Can you not trust me? Interesting that in section 76 when he's listing telestial sins. He includes dishonesty there. Among the big ones that you'd assume would send you to the telestial kingdom. Yes, he lists liars right alongside them. That is an area we need to improve on. And then the tenth, final of the Ten Commandments, number verse 17, thou shalt not covet. And he gives us a pretty good list. It's not all-inclusive, by the way. Okay, you could keep adding. But thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house because that might lead to murder to get it. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, because that could lead to adultery to get her, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass. Those things might lead to stealing. Nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And that could lead to lying. I mean, this is such a gateway sin. And so often, in fact, it's interesting, even as Jesus is raising the bar on all of these, covetousness seems to be one of those that if I could just keep that one, it's another way of raising the bar. It's another thing of drawing back, stepping back away from the line. And if I can just be content with what the Lord has allotted me, if I can honor other people and rejoice for them, that they have things that are desirable, good for them, I'm happy that they're happy. But also to realize where I am and be content and happy with that. You know, it's interesting, there's a great verse I pointed this out last year in DNC 19 when Oliver, excuse me, uh, Martin Harris is struggling with his own property 
and his own faith and his sacrifice. And the Lord just needs him to be willing to give up. Mortgage the farm. We got to publish the Book of Mormon. It's going to sweep the earth with righteousness. And But yes, E.B. Grandin needs some money. So do it. Just give up your farm if need be. But the way the Lord phrases it in DNC 19, he says, I command thee that thou shalt not covet thine own property, but impart it freely. And I picture Martin Harris going, what? I thought, no, coveting is when you desire something you don't own. This belongs to me. You just said it. Don't covet thine own property. So you can't covet what already belongs to you. You can only covet, covet what does. Oh, okay. I see where you're going with that. And you put thine own property in quotes. You were winking as you said that. Oh, it's not really mine. It's yours. Uh-huh. And if it's mine, then quit coveting it as if it were yours. Just offer it. Offer it willingly, freely. And bless his heart, Martin Harris does. So powerful. If you are struggling with covetousness, by the way, I will give you one little out. Actually, Paul gives it to us all. He says you're allowed to covet but he's very specific in terms of what you're allowed to covet. He says you should covet earnestly the best gifts. And he's talking about spiritual gifts there in 1 Corinthians 12. It's a great, great passage. DNC 46 says it similarly. It says desire or seek earnestly the best gifts, always remembering for what they were given. And he repeats it like five times in that chapter. They're given for other people. So all can be benefited, so all can, can grow, so all can learn, so all can be wise. It's for everybody else. And so that's covetousness in the most non-covetous way possible. I want those gifts so I have more to offer everyone else. That's beautiful. So if you're going to break one of the Ten Commandments, Paul gives you permission, but he only limits it to the tenth, and he only tells you you're allowed to covet best gifts. More used would I be is how we would phrase it. And there's the Ten Commandments. If only those were all there were. But in some ways, that kind of is the case. There's really only two, love God, love neighbor. Everything else will fall under those two headings. That is the big umbrella. And remember the bookend that came at the front? Remember me. This is who it's coming from. And then a bookend at the end. Let me reiterate who this is coming from, and how important I feel about this. So in verse 18, all the people saw the thunderings, the lightnings, the noise of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they were moved and stood afar off. Oh, no, 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 don't run, don't run. Remember, you're supposed to be able to come up and hear and see and experience all this for yourself. Well, I needed to reiterate and reconfirm how serious I am about, about all that. So hence the thundering and lightning. But I hope I didn't scare you off. That seems to be the case. They removed, they stood afar off. And sadly, I think sometimes that happens when we think about the commandments of God. Does it scare us away from the kind of blessings that are attached to every law? I heard a story once years ago about a missionary in Japan that met somebody like on the, at the train station or something that didn't seem, I, I don't know why, but he just, he was really interested. But the missionaries were like, no, this can't, this guy's too good to be true. He must be pulling our leg. Okay. It seems like, no, I want to join your church. And it's like, you don't even know anything about our church. What do you mean you want to join it? And so I would, I would never recommend this, this missionary uh, tactic. 
But instead of teaching the gospel and presenting the plan first, so that then the, con- the, the covenants and, and commandments are in context, no, they went straight for the commandments because they were trying to scare them off. Like, you don't, yeah, right, you want to join our church. Nobody wants to join our church the first without even hearing about it. So, uh, have you heard about the law of tithing? You have to give 10% of everything you own. That's what it takes to be part of this church. And he's like, I'll do it. Awesome. What? I just want to join your church. And they're like, no, well, what about the law of chastity? You probably never heard that, you know, and you got to be chaste and virtuous and so on. And so that definitely is going to scare you away. So no, it doesn't scare me. It sounds awesome. Let me... And I just remember kind of smiling in disbelief as I heard this story. Like, serious? you were trying to scare people away with the commandments of God? Well, that shows you how twisted your view of the commandments is that this is these are obstacles when really they're invitations. God intends them to be invitations to greater happiness and peace and rest, like Abraham wanted, crowned with commandments, not a few, like DNC 59 tells us. No, don't remove yourself just because of the rules God has given. Don't go afar off. Because the commandments are meant to draw you in. In verse 19, they said unto Moses, "Uh, Speak thou with us, and we will hear. But let not God speak with us, lest we die. Again, tragic that they think God is unapproachable. He isn't. You can come. Please do. Just be worthy and ready when you do. That's what all of these commandments are meant to, to affect in you. A readiness, a change of heart. In verse 20, Moses said unto the people, Fear not. That's the reassurance they needed. God has come to prove you, and that his fear may be before your faces, that ye sin not. Interesting, he'd say, fear not, because God is doing this so that you can fear him. Wait, what? Okay, we must have two different definitions. There's two kinds of fear, and don't let the wrong kind keep you from God. Let the right kind prepare you to come into his presence. Reverence and respect and awe. Elder Christofferson gave an amazing talk called A Sense of the Sacred. It's totally worth rereading or listening to. And in it, he talks about the fear of God. And yeah, it's reverence. Yes, it's respect. But he even said... Maybe there's an element of actual fear that needs to be part of that fear of God, too. It's the fear of disappointing him. And that comes out of love, not a lack of courage. Okay? Moses is trying to help the people develop that kind of fear. In fact, God is the one trying to help them do it. Hence the thunders and lightnings and so forth. Verse 21 doesn't seem like it's quite working yet. The people still stood afar off. But Moses... Moses drew near unto the thick darkness where God was. Wait, thick darkness where God was? I thought he is the Lord of light. Well, yeah. But it makes me think about a black hole, for example, that's such intense darkness because it draws all light into itself. That's how strong that gravitational pull is. Not even light can escape. When it does, it escapes gloriously to the point of creating worlds without number. But to think of the source of all light wrapped up in this thick darkness. And can we see the presence within that mysterious absence? 
are we coming unto God? In 22, the Lord says to Moses, Thus shalt thou say unto the children of Israel, Ye have seen that I have talked with you from heaven. You understand what has just happened? I'm here. I'm real. I'm willing to communicate if you're just willing to come. As a result, let me say it again. Ye shall not make with me gods of silver, neither shall ye make unto you gods of gold. Now that you know me and know that nothing can rival me, I hope living those first few commandments will come more easily. No need to make a god of silver or god of gold. He's come full circle back to the first great commandment. Instead, what should you make? Verse 24, make an altar. An altar of earth thou shalt make unto me, and shalt sacrifice thereon thy burnt offerings and thy peace offerings, thy sheep, thine oxen. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee, and I will bless thee. Sound like Abraham erecting altars everywhere he went? Sound like Jacob making sure there were pillars that he was setting up, pointing heaven, these mini mountains of the Lord out, growing out of gospel ground? That's an altar. That's a pillar. And it's meant to remind us that these are places where God has recorded his name. Go into any temple in the church, and what do you see? In letters of gold, holiness to the Lord. The house of the Lord. He has recorded his name there. And it's places like that where the Lord will come to be with us, where he will come to bless us. Then a little clarification here, verse 25. If thou wilt make me an altar of stone, thou shalt not build it of hewn stone. For if thou lift up thy tool upon it, thou hast polluted it. That's an interesting detail. So, unhewn stone. Hmm. Does that suggest that when God wants us to come, he really does want us to come as we are? Not to stay as we were, don't get me wrong, but whatever shape or form, whatever degree of polish or lack thereof, just come, sacrifice. The altar itself is a place of sacrifice. And so sacrifice yourself, your lesser version, and just come in your unhewn natural man state. I will begin the crafting. This master mason, which is God, chipping away every rough edge and making us into a stone worth building with, worth building upon one of his jewels, peculiar people. It makes me think also of Nebuchadnezzar's dream and the stone cut out of the mountain without hands that Daniel helped him understand. There's the kingdom of God. It is a rough stone rolling. And to see this unhewn stones coming together as people in our unfinished state still trying to be fit together, fitly framed upon this foundation of prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone, right? Paul in Ephesians. If we can be fitly framed together, oh, the altar will end up being a beautiful place of sacrifice. The stone cut out of the mountain. It wasn't us. We didn't hew it, but God did. And so we'll leave the further hewing to him. 
And then one last piece of instruction in verse 26. Neither shalt thou go up by steps unto mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Now you could take that as purely modesty speaking. If there's a, a, a ladder that you're walking up and as you're, you're wearing long robes, then someone down below looking up as you're ascending the ladder to go to this altar of sacrifice, yes, you would be exposed to them. So no, don't do that. Build a ramp so that people just walk up and there's no danger of being, uh, of being exposed before them. Well, in some ways, I, I do love beyond the, the literal coming to God knowing we are only exposed to His all-seeing eye and not worrying what other people might think. That there's no danger of being exposed to them. It's only God that will have the eyes to see. And as I come to him in my unhewn state, I can come and offer my sins upon that altar, and he will cover my nakedness. So there is nothing to be ashamed of. I do think that's a beautiful ending to a chapter on commandments. Just come. Come to the altar of sacrifice. Lay your sins down. Those broken commandments, the ones you just couldn't keep. And I will remake you, refashion you, polish every stone. I will cover your nakedness. Now we could end there. And those are the Ten Commandments. But to see, and I'll try to do this more briefly, in chapter 21, 22, and 23, there's these smaller laws and statutes and ordinances that God gives the people. Well, I think the Jews count 613 laws within the law of Moses. We're not going to see 603 today after the 10 that we've already covered. But there are some amazing things that I'll try to fly through in these three chapters. Okay, bear with me. This first one is one of my absolute favorites. In fact, every return missionary I meet, I try to point them to this passage. It's a weird one. I'll usually tell them in advance, oh, you're back from your mission. Remind me where you went or what was it like? And what do you think? What's your plan from here? And we're kind of getting back up to speed with old students or old friends. And I'll often say to them, now, don't forget to go get your ear pierced now that you're home. And they're like, what? Though the sister missionaries look at me like, oh, I got my ears pierced when I was a teenager. And the guys, the elders look at me like, what are you talking about? I'm like, no, that's the most important thing a recently returned missionary can do is go get your ear pierced. And as they're wondering what on earth I mean, I say, haven't you read Exodus 21? Now, with that lead in, who can resist having to turn to the page and see what on earth I'm talking about? Well, this is what I'm talking about. Verses 1 through 6 is a law against perpetual servitude. And that's important for Israel since they were in perpetual servitude, slavery, for four centuries plus back in Egypt. So we've got to make sure that never happens again, ever. So here's the rule. Verse 2, if thou buy an Hebrew servant, this could be indentured servitude, slavery was allowed at that time period, it just wasn't race-based as it's been in ours. But if you buy an Hebrew servant, six years he shall serve. In the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. So seventh day, day of rest, seventh year, year of rest. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Okay, So after six years you're free to go. Thank you. I, I purchased all this service. Thank you for rendering it. And now you're free to leave. Unless you don't want to go. Perhaps you came with nothing and now you have so much. Perhaps you're married and have children and, and you don't just want to leave. 
Perhaps even better, you have come to love the master that you have been serving. Now, this would suggest a very good master, one that's been a blessing to you as much as you've been a blessing to him. Well, under those conditions, look at verse 5. If the servant shall plainly say, I love my master, my wife, my children, I will not go out free. If there's this desire to remain, then you can stay. But there's going to need to be a way to prove to other people that you're here by choice and not by compulsion. Otherwise, your master could get in trouble. I'm not keeping them here against their will. They just love it. I can't let them go. They don't want to leave. Well, what are we going to do to make sure that people know that? Well, verse 6 gives us that answer. Then his master shall bring him unto the judges. This is going to be a public act that the world's going to know. He shall also bring him to the door or unto the doorpost. And here's where it gets weird. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. Now, do you understand why I tell returned missionaries to go get their ear pierced? Because that's what this servant's supposed to do. Wait, you want to stay? You want to serve? Okay, well, you want to be attached to the household. Okay, we can symbolize that. Bring the judges over, stand here next to the door, that same door frame that holds the blood of the lamb on... Passover, and let's shed a little of your own blood to mingle with that. Let's make you a permanent fixture here in our household. And I will nail you to my wall with an awl through your earlobe. Don't worry, you won't stay long. I'll pull it out and we'll clean the wound. But you'll have a pierced ear for the rest of your life so that people will see, oh, you want to keep serving. Now, do you understand why I suggest this for return missionaries? I'll often say to them, elder, sister, you served your time. You paid your dues, if you want to look at it that. If, you, if you're done, then I guess we won't hold it against you. Because there's no such thing as perpetual servitude in the kingdom of God. Our father, the king, doesn't believe in slavery. Right, Ammon? But if through this service you have come to truly love your master and recognize that every gift that you have in life has come from him, then wouldn't you want to just stay and serve forever? As I've said to my return missionaries, I, getting my ear pierced post-mission was the best thing I ever did. And no, you won't see any holes in my earlobes, not the literal kind. But spiritually speaking, I have done all I can to attach myself to the house of God. To continue rendering service that I hope is acceptable to him. Because I really do love my master. So my friends, please get your ear pierced. Just stay. And keep serving. The next set of verses he teaches about plural marriage which is tricky, hard. (laughs) Monogamy is hard, and polygamy is even harder. But there's some interesting things here. In verse 7, If a man sell his daughter to be a maidservant, she shall not go out as the men servants do. So we're growing from verse 6 into verse 7. And there it's like, wait a minute. They don't get to go free on the seventh year? That's not fair. Oh, girls can have perpetual servitude, but not boys? What's up with this misogyny? No, this is actually to, to help them. 
Because if it's a maidservant that is a, a concubine, for example, because this leads into what he's going to explain next about plural marriage, then if you were just to send them off after six years, that's the worst possible thing you could do. Because who's going to care for her? In that time period where women sadly were at the mercy of men for so many things, but to be provided for and to be protected, those were good things. They deserved from their husbands or their fathers or their brothers. Then you better not just send them out like some kind of oh, used commodity and I'm no longer interested. No, this is marriage. Think of Hagar, think of Bilhah, think of Zilpah, all of whom were maidservants, handmaids of their mistress, Sarah or Rachel or Rebecca. Sending them away would leave them unprotected and unprovided for, and you must not do that. Now, if there was not a marriage, though marriage was originally intended, look at verse 8, if she please not her master who hath betrothed her to himself, then shall he let her be redeemed, which is what happens with Ruth and Boaz, we'll see later. So again, make sure she's provided for. To sell her unto a strange nation, he shall have no power, seeing he hath dealt deceitfully with her. If you intended to marry her and ended up not, then you're, this is not some kind of possession. You've deceived her. She did not receive what she assumed she was receiving in this. And so you are not allowed to sell her to someone else. No, she is allowed to go free and, and find a life of her own. And like I said, that's exactly what happens with Ruth. She is redeemed by someone else, by Boaz. In verse 9, if he have betrothed her unto his son, he shall deal with her after the manner of daughters. Which goes back to what we learned about Jethro, that daughters-in-law, according to that passage, should be treated no differently than daughters. A daughter-in-law must be a daughter-in-love. And there's no second-class citizenship here. Take care of one another. Provide for one another. Especially those that are most vulnerable, as described in the, the women in these verses. In verse 10, if he take him another wife, this is where we get into plural marriage, her food, her raiment, her duty of marriage, there's intimacy, shall he not diminish. So in plural marriage, every wife is meant to be treated equally, respectfully, not second-class citizens there either. It's interesting that within this culture that allows it, in places where God had commanded it, he's still concerned for every member of the family. That's important to keep in mind when it comes to God. In verse 11, if he do not these three unto her, the three of protecting and providing for, of treating like immediate family, and of treating them equally, if you don't these, do these three, then shall she go out free without money, which suggests that they are not required to stay in an unacceptable, unhealthy situation. In fact, in plural marriage during the Utah period, there were incredibly liberal divorce laws. Really interesting. The harder the marriage, the easier the divorce. That's the way they did it in Pioneer, Utah. Sadly, in our day, where monogamy seems so much easier compared to polygamy, monog uh, marriage is easier, and sadly, divorce is even easier than that. No-fault divorce it doesn't even need to be a reason. 
Well, there better have been a good reason. We'll see that uh, in what Moses teaches and in what Jesus teaches about what Moses taught. But in this case, no, you are free. You don't have to confine yourself to a toxic relationship. And, and only you and the Spirit can be the, the judge of what determines that kind of toxic relationship. But it is interesting to read those verses and see how God is providing for the vulnerable, how he's taking care of the potentially marginalized and making sure that they are protected as well. Now, from verse 12 all the way through verse 36, you'll see a ton of civil and criminal law being legislated here and legislated by God himself. Pretty good source. The most famous is what you see in verses 23 through 25. And then when we sometimes think of the law of Moses, this is often how we summarize it. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burning for burning, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Now, admittedly, that sounds barbaric by modern standards. An eye for an eye, isn't what Gandhi said? That would just make the whole world blind. But that's just from our perspective. From an Egyptian perspective, this is a huge leap in the right direction. We are trying, again, we're raising foster kids and we're trying to unlearn the Egyptian in them and relearn the Israelite. And so let's go from a telestial level, at least up to a terrestrial. Celestial can wait for a while as we acclimatize, okay? You see, eye for an eye, at least that's just. What might it have been in Egypt? Oh, you put out somebody else's eye and they come back with, with a vendetta for your life itself. And you'll pay with that with, with your own life's blood. No, that is unjust. So to go from unjust, a life for an eye, to just, an eye for an eye, and then later with Christ, what do you say we turn the other cheek and love our enemies? How's that sound? Well, like I said, it's going to take a while to, to overcome the altitude sickness and rise to that level of living. But even thinking about this terrestrial level, the justice of an eye for an eye, what good does that do? That's, again, that's what I think uh, Gandhi is pushing back against. That serves no purpose. Now we're just all blind. Well, if nothing else, it does let you feel what you've caused someone else. And I call that the principle of enforced empathy. We will see more of that in a moment. I hinted at it when we were talking about Joseph in Egypt. You wouldn't feel what Joseph was going through when you sold him into Egypt. Well, you will feel what it's like when you're thrown into prison yourself. There's the principle of enforced empathy. Well, let's see it as it comes up. Verse 12, here's some more nuance to this criminal and civil law. Verse 12 suggests that full punishment is required when the crime you committed was on purpose. But 13 says, well, if it's an accident, then you can claim sanctuary. So that's good to know. There, we do have to take into consideration intent. Is this murder or manslaughter? Is this willful negligence? Or is this some kind of accidental oversight? That, but can that be pushed in the wrong direction? Can that be taken to the extreme? Well, verse 14 pushes back against that. So yes, there's sanctuary for those that weren't uh, malicious in their intent, but ended up doing something wrong. But you can't go claim sanctuary when you don't deserve it. So don't 
we're not trying to abuse justice, but neither are we trying to abuse mercy. Interesting to watch these laws trying to help Israel settle into this Goldilocks zone, proving the contraries. Verse 15, he that smiteth his father or his mother shall be surely put to death. Yikes. And then two verses later, same goes for those who curse his father or his mother. Now, I've seen some people push back against that and says, talk about barbaric. What kind of horrible parent would, would, I mean, death penalty for talking smack to mom and dad? There'd be a lot less population on the planet. Well, maybe so, but could you also say there'd be a lot less poor parenting? Because I think sometimes, it goes back to what Paul was saying about, yes, honor your parents, but parents don't provoke your children. And I wonder if a parent, can you imagine if that were, were enforced really, really strictly, how hard a parent would work to raise children that would be respectful and, and kind and not smite them and not curse them? I wonder, is this a warning to children or is it a warning to parents? Because even at their most belligerent, when a child acts up, I don't think there's a parent on earth that would want them to pay for it with capital punishment. I see that as motivation for both parent and child to seek peace and love at home and work things out within the home whenever possible, even without having to go to even a lowly ruler of 10. No, we're, no, we're going to work on this. Okay, good. Good motivation. Verse 16, he that stealeth a man, that's kidnapping, and selleth him, ooh, that sounds like Joseph in Egypt, or if he be found in his hand, so it hasn't even been happened yet, but he intends to, he shall surely be put to death. Hmm. Did Joseph's brothers deserve the death penalty? Which puts his forgiveness on an even more exalted plane. In verse 18 and 19, we see workers' compensation. If you injure someone, if that happens, he shall pay for the loss of his time. Later in 26 and 27, if the servant loses an eye or a tooth, then they're free to go. That's their compensation. That's even better than an eye for an eye. It's like, eye for freedom? No, please poke mine. <laughs> I, want, I want to get out of here. In 22, here's protection for pregnant women. God seems to be thinking of everything. If men strive and hurt a woman with child, so that her fruit, that's her child, depart from her, so there's a miscarriage, and yet no mischief follow, so the woman herself survives, he shall be surely punished, according as the woman's husband will lay upon him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. So, wrongful miscarriage, there has to be punishment. He will surely pay for that, so, surely punished. But there's not a specific punishment, which is interesting. It's actually more just this way, because how far along is she in the pregnancy, for example? What, what, what are the specific circumstances of the case? That, those all need to be weighed in the balance, okay? So that's, that's good there. Also, well, who's gonna decide? Two parties. And I love this difference. The husband, the father of this child that has been miscarried, and the judges. You see, the husband brings in the personal side, and the judges bring in the impersonal. And I really do believe both of those are necessary to properly balance justice and mercy. 
with the husband there, you better believe there's going to be justice. But with the judges there, there's going to be greater opportunity for mercy to intervene, to try to take all the details into consideration. Okay? Not such a barbaric law that we sometimes chalk up to the law of Moses. In verse 28, here's involuntary manslaughter. If an ox gore a man or a woman that they die, so there's the manslaughter, but it was involuntary, just an, it was an accident, the ox did it, then what's the result? You kill the ox, but not the owner. Hmm, okay, that's, that makes, that's, that's logical. Uh, the owner didn't do it, so it wasn't life for life there, but the ox did, and the ox will pay with its life. Again, as, a mo as an owner of that ox, reliant on its work, uh, then that's good motivation for me to keep my oxen uh, well-behaved. Uh, in fact, what happens if that doesn't happen? Notice verse 29. But if the ox were wont to push with his horn in time past. In other words, there's a history here. He keeps doing that. This is an ornery beast. And if it hath been testified to his owner, so now it's known, this isn't ignorance, and he hath not kept him in, so now it's willful negligence, then it is a capital crime if the ox kills someone. You had every opportunity to, to save the other person, to change things. You knew about it. You didn't act on it. So now it is life for life, capital crime. If, on the other hand, verse 32, if the ox shall push a manservant or a maidservant, he shall give unto their master 30 shekels of silver, and the ox shall be stoned. That goes back to the involuntary manslaughter. Uh, a manservant or maidservant is worth preserving and protecting also, right? All life is valuable. But it is interesting what that determines as far as, yes, the ox still has to be stoned as before, but because of the, the time period and the culture that allowed for servitude or slavery, that this doesn't just affect the person who, was, who died from the ox, but it affects the, the owner uh, of that person's service. And what's the price then of a slave? 30 pieces of silver. That should tell us something about Judas and the blood price on Jesus. If they're younger, we learned this back with Joseph, if they're younger, then it's 20 pieces. Here it's 30. Well, keep going. Liability laws, again, for willful negligence, that comes up in 33 and 34. If a man shall open a pit, or if a man shall dig a pit and not cover it, and an ox or an ass fall therein, well, then the owner of the pit shall make it good, and give money unto the owner of them, and the dead beast shall be his. Again, you could have avoided it. You, this was willful, willful negligence on your part. And since somebody else's animal died, well, here's some of that enforced empathy. Then you give, you, you buy it. You just bought yourself a dead animal. You make it right, whatever that takes. And there's some, some leeway there too, in terms of how much is that animal value? What's it worth to that owner? You have to decide together. You have to make it right. And since the animal died, I, I just bought it. You break it, you buy it. I guess that's where it comes from. Verse 35 is uh, speaking of no fault accidents. If one man's ox hurt another's, that he die. So this is just animal against animal. Then they shall sell the live ox and divide the money of it. And the dead ox also they shall divide. So it was an accident, no fault on either part, but something happened. And it shouldn't all be on, only one party shouldn't have to bear the loss. 
the accident, both parties should, should share the loss. So you'll share the, the blame and you'll share the loss together. So let's take the one, whichever one's alive, well, we're both going to lose it, but we'll sell it and split the money. The one that died, we both lost, stood to lose something there, but stood something to gain as far as the meat and, and hide and so is concerned. So we'll split that too. This one actually makes me think of Solomon and these two mothers that were fighting over the one living child. Well, let's just treat it like the old law of Moses and uh, you guys can split everything. You can split the living child. You can split the dead child. We'll just play totally fair on this. Which, as you know from that story, <laughs> proved incredibly wise because the true mother came forth. Well, there's chapter 21. Chapter 22, more laws, miscellaneous laws, you might call them. Verse 1, punishment for theft. There has to be enough risk in terms of danger of punishment to offset the reward, which was that unlawful gain. So if if you steal one, then how much are you going to have to repay in terms of restitution? Is it one to five? Is that enough risk-reward ratio? Was it one to four in terms of a different animal? We're going to work these through depending on the situation. In verse two, it's a, a law about death from self-defense. We call this castle doctrine, that if somebody uh, breaches my moat, uh, and comes into my castle, I am free to defend myself and my property. And that comes out in Exodus 22, verse 2. The theme in like the first 15 verses of this chapter is all about restitution. So notice language like verse 1, restore five oxen for an ox, or four sheep for a sheep. In verse 3, make full restitution. In verse 4, restore double. Verse 5, make restitution of the best of his own. So I'm not going to replace your good ox with a, a lousy one on my part. Nope. If I have to restore, I'm going to give you the very best that I have. In verse 6, how about surely make restitution? Or 7, pay double. 9, pay double. 12, make restitution. 14, surely make it good. That same phrase we saw a chapter ago. So much of this is trying to establish equity, justice, among people that had been treated like, like cattle for 430 years, just here to do our work, and there is no justice there. We are trying to even the playing field and treat everyone with respect and a sense of self and a sense of ownership and life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness it's all part of this. Verse 16 and 17 will expand beyond just the restitution for theft or loss. If a man entice a maid that is not betrothed and lie with her. Now is this rape? Is it simply fornication? Simply, that's wrong too. Well, what's the punishment? He shall surely endow her to be his wife. I guess this is where shotgun weddings come from. On the other hand, if her father utterly refuse to give her unto him, absolutely no way, no shotgun wedding here. I want to use my shotgun for something else, though. Well, he shall pay money according to the dowry of virgins. So in some ways here, if there is intimacy outside of wedlock, you need to take responsibility for it. In some cases, that means marriage. Perhaps in other cases, that means having the baby and putting it up for adoption. 
in some ways is that mean child support and alimony is it's treating people as they deserve to be treated even when something some wrongdoing has taken place and in the case of nope the father is absolutely opposed to any kind of marriage then what's interesting here is the guilty party still has to pay him according to the dowry of a virgin it's like if this is not a safe relationship and i do not want my daughter in this kind of a situation most of the times when a father gives his daughter the husband to be provides some kind of a dowry seven years of labor jacob for rachel or for leah what will you give well at this point she's no longer a virgin through no fault of her own it would seem in this verse and I do love the, fault, the, the idea here that if the man is to blame in this situation, then the woman is to be treated no differently than a virgin would be. And I hope that we understand that in terms of rape and no loss of chastity on the woman's part if she is not to blame. And the same is true if a woman rapes a man. There's, there's something important in that verse to consider. In verse 18 to 20, the Lord speaks of witchcraft and forbids it. In the Joseph Smith translation, it actually changes it to murder. So that's an interesting switch. It also uh, forbids bestiality and idolatry. Kind of quick succession through those three major sins. Then verse 21, thou shalt neither vex a stranger nor oppress him. And here's why. For ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. Now, he didn't need that ending. It still would be wrong to vex a stranger or to oppress someone, some foreigner. No, they deserve to be cared for and treated as a, a real person. Come on, father of Gershom. You are a stranger in a strange land. But that's why I love the end. It's not just a matter of right and wrong. It's a matter of personal experience. If your conscience doesn't propel you to keep this commandment, then surely your own memory should. Uh, you know what it's like to be a stranger. You know what it's like to be vexed and oppressed in a foreign land. And so you better treat others. So this is an interesting twist on the golden rule. It's not just treat them as you would want to be treated, but treat them as you wished that you had been treated when you were going through similar things. This is compassion, suffering with, born out of shared suffering. I know exactly how that feels, and I will treat you kindly as a result, compassionately, empathetically. Now, this is where enforced empathy has the chance to come in. Because there in 21, it's, you know what it's like. In fact, uh, the next chapter later, I'll, let me just skip ahead for a moment. In Exodus 23, verse 9, he reiterates it, but makes it even more personal. Also, thou shalt not oppress a stranger, for ye know the heart of a stranger, seeing ye were strangers in the land of Egypt. I love how it elevates that. It's not just that you know what being a stranger is. It's you know their heart. That's a deeper, visceral, gut, yada, I know intimately. Just how damaging that is and how devastating it can be. And of course, if I have the heart of a stranger still, then what will well up within that heart? Pure, unforced empathy. 
a desire to serve out of personal experience. Now, what if you don't lean into that personal experience? Oh, it must be that you've forgotten it. Well, then let me remind you. Or perhaps you never went through such things yourself and therefore have no personal experience upon which to draw your empathy. Well, I can help with that as well. And this is one of the more brutal passages of enforced empathy you'll see in Scripture. Buckle up for this one. So right after verse 21, we're back in chapter 22 again. Verse 21, don't vex a stranger. You know what it's like. Then 22, in case you've forgotten. Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. Maybe you haven't been one of those. If thou afflict them in any wise. So anything here. If they cry at all unto me, then guess what happens? I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath shall wax hot. This is righteous indignation, and it comes for good reason. And what will happen? I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. How's that for enforced empathy? Would you prefer compassion chosen or compassion compelled? That is intense. You don't, what you do to a widow or an orphan, because you don't care enough to try to put yourself in their shoes, you don't try to feel what they might feel in their broken hearts, then let me break the hearts of the people you care most about. You won't even be around to make the difference. And your wife and your children, those widows, those orphans, will be left at the mercy of people that are hopefully better than you. You understand what he's saying here? God is so serious about caring for the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the least of these, my brethren. We've done it unto him. So we better be careful here. In 25 to 27, he's still worried about the poor and needy. He forbids usury. That's charging interest uh, because debt will only further impoverish the poor. If you loan them money, are you trying to help them or are you trying to hurt them? So be careful with that. If their collateral is all they have, then let them keep it in times of need. I love the way he puts it in 26. If thou at all take thy neighbor's raiment to pledge, so all he's got is this cloak, this coat, and that's his collateral. Loan me money just to make it through the day. Then notice what the creditor has to do. Thou shalt deliver it unto him, by that the sun goeth down. For that is his covering only. It's his raiment for his skin. Wherein shall he sleep? And it shall come to pass when he crieth unto me that I will hear, for I am gracious. Love the end of that. I'm gracious. Will you be? If that coat is all he has and he's giving that to you as collateral for some kind of loan, just to make it to the next harvest or to make it to the next meal, that might as well be his skin. So don't skin the poor alive, don't fleece them. Just give. Loan, let him pay it back. Trust him at least that much. Be gracious to him. 
as I'm gracious to him and gracious to you as well. This whole chapter could be summarized by the final verse. Ye shall be holy men unto me. That's what I'm after. To be ready to come up to the mount, to be worthy of it, to be holy just as I am holy. And holy nation is what I intended you to become when I first called you my peculiar treasure. Then one more chapter, more miscellaneous laws in 23. Verse 1 outlaws false accusations. He says, Thou shalt not raise a false report. Put not thine hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. Now this goes back to the ninth commandment. Thou shalt not bear false witness. But even more than that, don't even raise a false report. Is this, does this include gossip? Does this include talking behind someone's back or spreading rumors that may not be founded, or even if they are? Is this contributing to a contaminated social media feed and just piling on? It's scary the, kind, the level of discourse that we've descended to. And social media so often becomes just a matter of raising false reports and putting our hands with the wicked to be unrighteous witnesses. In verse 2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil, neither shalt thou speak in a cause to decline after many to rest judgment. You sense peer pressure in that verse? Just going with the flow of perverting justice by siding with a majority that doesn't deserve your allegiance. No, far better to be in the minority that speaks up in defense of truth. Don't follow the multitude. That's going with the crowd. Don't decline after many. To rest judgment, to twist the outcome, to decline. That's just a great verb, the way the King James translators spelled it out. You're descending to their level. Don't do that. Don't decline. In verse 3, neither shalt thou countenance a poor man in his cause. Now the JST changes that to a wicked man. And countenance means to show favoritism. So don't show favoritism towards a wicked man in his cause. That's just helping the, the wicked rule, and that's not what we want. But even if you stick with the King James original, it's interesting to take verse 3. Don't, don't play favorites to the poor. And then couple it with verse 6. Thou shalt not rest the judgment of thy poor in his cause. So neither pride nor pity should interfere with justice here. We're not going to treat the poor any differently. They don't deserve any more justice or any less justice than anyone else, or any more or less mercy. We are going to treat all people equally. So often in paintings or statues of Lady Justice, she's blindfolded. Right? She holds the scales in her hand to suggest that it needs to, everyone needs to be weighed in the balances equally. And that justice will be blind so that we're not treating one person differently just because of unrelated circumstances. Interesting as we see it there. In verse 4, If thou meet thine enemy's ox or his ass going astray, thou shalt surely bring it back to him again. Hmm, so I guess loving thine enemy isn't just a New Testament directive. Even if this animal belongs to your enemy and they're wandering somewhere. Yes, burden yourself. Go out of your way. Wouldn't you want them to do the same? We're just reciprocity. This is hospitality. This is golden rule. Live into it. 
And I would add, if you would do this for a wandering animal, how much more should we be concerned about a wandering child? And I don't just mean physically. I do mean spiritually. Will we go out of our way for anyone whose child may be lost from the straight and narrow path? Will we reach out to help them find their way home? In verse 5, he says something similar. If thou see the ass of him that hateth thee, you may or may not feel the same towards them. But if you see one of their animals lying under his burden and wouldst forbear to help him, I don't want to help, it's my enemy, then thou shalt surely help with him. I don't care how you feel, get over it. Overcome the natural man and see this other person as someone just as in need of help as you would be. I don't care what your lesser emotions might be. Push back against them and be better than you otherwise would. In verse 7, keep thee far from a false matter, and the innocent and righteous slay thee not, for I will not justify the wicked. So there, beware of false accusations. Be far from a false matter. No innocent person should ever pay the price for a crime they didn't commit. There's a suggestion in that verse of innocent until proven guilty. In verse 8, thou shalt take no gift, for the gift blindeth the wise and perverteth the words of the righteous. So there's no bribery. Even beyond that, be careful about accepting gifts where strings are attached. Even the church refuses to take a lot of government aid uh, with, so in a lot of different areas. And that's to avoid the strings that are almost always attached to money. So beware, beware of those kinds of quote-unquote gifts. In verse 10, Six years thou shalt sow thy land, and shalt gather in the fruits thereof, but the seventh year thou shalt let it rest and lie still. So this sounds a lot like what we saw with servitude, but now it's the land itself. There should be a, a Sabbath year even for the earth. And then he explains a reason, another reason why that the poor of thy people may eat. And what they leave, the beasts of the field shall eat. In like manner thou shalt deal with thy vineyard and with thy oliveyard. So yes, a Sabbath for the land, but a chance for the poor to provide for themselves? We'll see later the, the law against reaping, or glean, uh, reaping the corners of the, of the field. Or after you've gone through once for the harvest, don't go back through and make sure you picked every last grape or gathered every last grain because the poor need something to live on too. God is always so concerned about the least of these, his brethren, as we should be. And so on that seventh year, just let the land recover and let the poor find whatever they can find in those fields, growing by the hand of God, Here's God providing for, for the lowly. And even after the poor have eaten, suggesting there's enough for them and to be full, then let the beasts graze and they can get some <laughs> a little better, perhaps a little better feed than what they've been used to because they can just forage and feed wherever they choose. Okay, It is interesting to me to see that God cares for the land and the poor and animals. And how's our ecology how do we treat living creatures? And how do we treat the poor? God cares about them all. In verse 12, he repeats then the command for rest on the Sabbath day and then shifts to a larger picture in verse 14. 
three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. He says it again in 17. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord God. Now these are the three main pilgrimage feasts where Jews were supposed to all gather back to Jerusalem to perform their sacrifices at the temple. Uh, we'll see that coming up later. And to celebrate the nation of Israel coming back together as one. Now these three feasts are listed in 15 and 16. 15 talks about the Feast of Unleavened Bread that we studied a few weeks ago, right? Day after Passover, Passover is one day, and then the next seven days are the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Some lump it all together and speak of the eight days of unleavened bread. The next one in 16, the Feast of Harvest, also known as the First Fruits, because the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, are being gathered. And then end of 16, the third feast, the feast of ingathering, which is in the end of the year when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Now I'll admit, feast of harvest and feast of ingathering sound a lot, of a lot alike, but they are different. And one refers to the earliest harvests and the, la and the other refers to the last harvests. So bookending all the gifts of God that he's given you from first fruits to final harvest. Do we see the hand of God behind it all? First, do we see the hand of God behind our own deliverance from Egypt, where we could grow our own food instead of just growing it for the Egyptians or working for them, slaving for them? And then to begin to rejoice over what we are providing for ourselves, what God is providing for us, and to keep that in mind, knowing that we will rejoice once again with him when the final fruit comes in. See, here's the three. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's Pesach, or Passover. The Feast of Harvest, that's Shavuot, also known as the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of Pentecost. And the Feast of Ingathering, known as Sukkot, also known as the Feast of Tabernacles. And remember those three, Passover, deliverance from Egypt, and a new planting season, to be honest. They can finally grow their own crops. The Feast of Pentecost, or Weeks, because it comes 50 days, which is 7 times 7 plus 1. So there's the Pentecost, 50. There's the weeks, 7 of them, after Passover. And that's when the wheat harvest first comes in. And then the Feast of Ingathering, the completion of the late fall harvest. By the way, in later tradition, some additional purposes of celebration were attached to some of those. Uh, unleavened bread didn't need anything extra. Deliverance from Egypt uh, is, is huge. But the Feast of Harvest and the Feast of Ingathering, or Pentecost and Tabernacles, got an added layer of meaning as time went on to go beyond just the agricultural cycle. Shavuot became a commemoration of the giving of the Torah, that not only is God providing us food to eat, but also the word of God to live on. Man shall not live by bread alone, right, manna? So there's the Torah. And sometimes Shavuot is even celebrated like, let's stay up all night and study scripture. Oh, there's a good goal for unshaken saints, right? Can we last that long? And then the Feast of Tabernacles is also meant to commemorate their wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, where they were in tabernacles themselves, little tents, little booths. And so if you see in modern Judaism, often they'll make some kind of a canopy out in the backyard or someplace and, and go eat their meals there. Some will even sleep out there. It's a great back, backyard camping trip for the kids. But to commemorate 
the, the fact that God led them through their wilderness wanderings and ultimately brought them to the, to the greatest of harvests, a promised land flowing with milk and honey. These three great pilgrimage feasts are definitely worth remembering for ancient Israel and even modern Israel as well. Do we see God's hand in our deliverance and in the providence that he always gives us, both physically and spiritually? Then verse 18 and 19 Speaking more of specific sacrificial offerings, thou shalt not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread. Again, it's always got to be unleavened. No yeast to cause decay, no sin involved. Neither shall the fat of my sacrifice remain until the morning. It's all got to be used up. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. So not just the firstlings of the flocks, but also the firstlings or the first fruits. Of the field. This is, I'm hungry, I want to eat. Well, pray first. I want to feed myself. Well, remember God first and foremost. Verse 19 is a weird one. It says, Thou shalt not seethe a kid in his mother's milk. What? Don't boil a baby goat in the milk of its mother? Okay. Now, some scholars have suggested there was some pagan fertility cult in the ancient Near East uh, surrounding Israel that that's what they did as part of their fertility rites. That, hey, we're trying to ensure a good harvest next season. So we'll take a baby goat, we'll take its mother and milk it, and then we'll boil the baby goat in the mother's milk, and then we'll take the milk and meat combination and kind of sprinkle it across the fields as some sort of sacrificial fertility rite. Well, there in one, on one level, God is saying, yeah, let's not do that, shall we? Just trust that God will provide. Uh, and we're not, you don't have to make, in some ways, let's not go down that road of, of superstition. We'll stick with sacrifice, but not superstition. And those are very different. Now, even just common humanity. I mean, the baby goat wouldn't know what's going on, but we would. And doesn't, doesn't it just kind of sit not well with you that the thought of any animal being boiled in the milk of its mother what i think it's suggesting here is what should be providing life and sustenance should never bring about destruction instead to me there's a lesson there about child abuse and you're supposed to be loving this this child not harming it now, one other twist on this, actually, modern, uh, is modern Judaism, this, this rule, this law is taken to mean that meat and dairy should never be combined. As far as, that doesn't spell, isn't spelled out in the Old Testament, but based on that verse, don't see the kid in its mother's milk, you never know where this meat came from or where this milk comes from, and so just in case it might be then let's steer clear of the entire thing and never combine milk and meat in the same dish. So no, you can either have, when I was in Israel and you'd go to like the, the Jerusalem pizza hut, well, you're not going to get a pizza with both meat and cheese. You can either have the sauce and the meat or you can have the sauce and the cheese, but cheese and meat, huh? You can go to the McDonald's and don't ask for a cheeseburger because that's not kosher either. In fact, we had a, a rabbi that was one of our professors at the Jerusalem Center. 
and he said that in very strict Orthodox homes, uh, there's such a, a differentiation between milk and meat that they won't even they won't share space on the same plate, uh, let alone the same object, the same item of food. He said in richer homes, often they'll even have two sets of dishes where one set of dishes is for meat dishes and the other set is for milk dishes and never the twain shall meet. He said in even wealthier homes, you might have two dishwashers and one where the plates from the meat dishes and one for the plates from the milk dishes because you don't want them mixing within the dishwasher. And take it up another notch and if you're really wealthy, you might end up having two kitchens. And one is where you cook the meat dishes and the other you cook the milk dishes. On the one hand, you might think that's overkill. Uh, and you might think of the Pharisaism that, that Jesus condemned in the New Testament. On the other hand, and having had Jewish friends and still do, and seeing the seriousness they attach to the law of God, I do take my hat off to them to be as far away from crossing lines as possible and to, and to take God's word as seriously as Sinai itself. Well, just a few more things. From verse 20 to 33, the rest of this chapter, you see a promise about the promised land. In 20, he says, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way. I'm trying to guide you up this mountain. Okay? Stay within the confines of covenant. And to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Sounds a lot like following the prophet in our day. I will send a messenger. That's what angels were often referred as and they will keep you in the way. You'll br they'll bring you all the way into the promised land. So follow. Again, in light of all these commandments I've been giving you, please stay on this straight and narrow path that has been lined out, marked out for you by these commandments. In 21, beware of him. And that doesn't mean be scared of this angel, but be aware of the important role he is playing in your life and obey his voice. Provoke him not. So maybe there's even that level of, of beware. Don't get him angry, okay? For he will not pardon your transgressions. For my name is in him. This angel is the personification of justice. So stay straight. Stay true. There will be personifications of mercy as well. But you need to come to know the justice first. In 22, if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, remember it's me speaking, not just the angel, not just the prophet, then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies. That's a good thing for you. An adversary unto thine adversaries. I'll be on your side because you've proven that you're on mine. In 23, for mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. I will cut them off. There's a go before you and be your rearward, as we saw escaping Egypt. On your right hand and left, mine angels round about you, bearing you up. I'm, I want to be with you on this journey. And these commandments are the way you can stay with me. These are the conditions of our covenant. In verse 24, thou shalt not bow down to their gods, all those ites we just met, nor serve them, nor do after their works but thou shalt utterly overthrow them and quite break down their images. That does sound like an all or nothing. Utterly overthrow. Quite break down. 
No gods before me? That was the first one he listed. It was the one he came back to when he brought it full circle. I'm jealous for your sake. So please stay true to me. In 25, you shall serve the Lord your God, and he shall bless thy bread and thy water. I will take sicknesses away from the midst of thee. There shall nothing cast their young, nor be barren in thy land. The number of thy days I will fulfill. Can you imagine that kind of preservation and protection? Your bread, all will be well. Your water, all good. Nothing casting their young. Sounds like Jacob and the flocks and herds of Laban and just miraculously multiplying. I will bless you if you'll be mine, my peculiar treasure. Verse 27, I will send my fear before thee and will destroy all the people to whom thou shalt come. And I will make all thine enemies turn their backs unto thee, and I will send hornets before thee, which shall drive out the Hivite, the Canaanite, the Hittite from before thee. Hornets? Oh, he already used lice and flies and locusts. But that was just to soften, or better said, break the hearts of the Egyptians in hopes they would let you go free. Now that then you are on the defense. Now you're going on the offense. And we will see in later chapters the conquest of Canaan. And so what am I sending before you? Hornets? That's a scary thought. And that's kind of what's intended. I will send my fear before you so that your enemy will leave and allow you to possess the land promised to your ancestors. In 29, I will not drive them out from before thee in one year. That's an interesting thing for them to realize. This is not going to be a quick fix, hornets notwithstanding. Lest the land become desolate and the beast of the field multiply against thee. So what's he going to do instead? By little and little, I will drive them out from before thee until thou be increased and inherit the land. You see, if I just destroy everybody, drive them out, then there's nothing left of the land and... and the beasts will proliferate to the point that, that you'll never be able to, to conquer, them, conquer the land from them. So this is going to be a line upon line, precept upon precept, little by little approach. But you'll get there. Yeah, you remember Jacob chapter 5 when you have all these good and bad branches on these olive trees? And he says, well, let's clear out the bad as the good shall grow. That's great advice. Uh, and to see the same thing happening with the conquest of Canaan. Just good, slowly displacing evil. In fact, best case scenario, good converting evil to join them in their righteousness. After all, I've only chosen you to go out and choose everybody else. There's best case. Verse 31, then, I will set thy bounds from the Red Sea even unto the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert unto the river. For I will deliver the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and thou shalt drive them out before thee. There's the geography of the promised land. From here to here, from there to there. It's all going to be yours. And how's it going to come about? Notice the two parties working together. I will deliver the inhabitants, and thou shalt drive them out. Part me, part you. Sound like a covenant relationship? It's what I'm after. Finally then, 32, thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. I mean, how could you? You've, you're making a covenant with me. And thou shalt not commit adultery. 
No unfaithfulness here. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest they make thee sin against me. For if thou serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. And which of you will be trapped? You see, as this mixed multitude will be in the land of promise, slowly the one displacing the other, who's going to have more power over the other? Will you influence them or will they influence you? So that's why you have to be careful. Don't make covenants. Let me set your bounds. Let me give you these commandments to keep you safe and out of their snares. I love the way he ends this this chapter in terms of a snare, because sadly, especially among our youth, so often they feel trapped by the commandments of God when that was not the intent. God's intent was to keep them out of the traps of the adversary. It's snares that he is concerned about. I actually had a student years ago, funny, funny kid, great personality, who once said to me, you know, I always used to think that the commandments of God were restrictive, that I couldn't do anything and the church wasn't letting me. And then I went to the zoo and I realized that I'm grateful for the bars. And I just died laughing, thinking, that's a brilliant analogy. At the zoo, I don't see anybody clueless enough to grab the bars of the cage and start shaking it, crying out, let me in, let me in. No, at the zoo, we're on the right side of the bars. And they are meant to keep us safe from the animals on the other side. The New Testament tells us that Satan goes about like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And the commandments of God are the bars that keep him on one side and allow me to feel free on the other. I pray that through the power of God, we can have the kind of experience we need to have the necessary paradigm shift about God's laws. That they are meant to keep us out of snares, not to entangle us. That they are evidence of a loving God who's figured out how life is best lived and told us all those secrets. To be crowned with commandments, not a few. That is my hope. So please, Lord, keep them coming. Even in these three skip-over chapters that we didn't skip over, I hope you did see the wisdom of God and the justice of God and the mercy of God. They are on full display through his law. We see more than his finger writing on the tablets. We catch a glimpse of his glorious Father's heart. To sum it all up, then can we go back to one phrase that I skipped over in 23 and an another phrase that I didn't skip over from 22, but is worth repeating. 23.13, And in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect. It's a great word we don't use very much. Be careful. Be on your guard. Pay strict attention. That's all that the Hebrew suggests. It means to keep that's the same verb that's used in terms of keep the commandments. Be circumspect. Just keep it. It's the same word for Adam and Eve, keeping the Garden of Eden. It's the same word for Cain, being his brother's keeper. It's the same word for 
cherubim and the flaming sword, keeping, guarding the way of the tree of life. And that's what we're supposed to do with the commandments. We're supposed to keep them. We're supposed to guard them. Even the way the King James translators gave it to us, to be circumspect. Spect is the word for looking, like spectacles, or spectacle, or spectator. And circum is the word for around, like circumference, or circumnavigate. So to be circumspect, look around and see all that God has done for you and realize that he knows the best possible way of living. Look around, be circumspect, and see the dangers that he's trying to help us navigate as we're climbing Mount Sinai step by step, trying to avoid falling off cliffs on either side. The straight and narrow path. Remember Jacob's ladder, the vertical straight and narrow? Yeah, it hurts when you step aside. Therefore, the last verse worth repeating, 2231, and ye shall be holy men unto me. That is what God is trying to develop within each of us. True holiness. And I testify that as we come unto him through his word, including his word, which is law, then the day will come that he can say of us what he just said there. Not thou shalt be alone, but ye shall be holy men and holy women unto me. That will be, this is cause and effect, that is natural result. And for a chosen people, for a peculiar treasure, then there's no better way to arrive at that goal than by keeping God's commandments. Only by that can we become a kingdom of priests and priestesses. It's that way, it's his way, that we will become an holy nation.